This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn more about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. Well, hello. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and it is Wednesday, August 19th, 2020. This is the 262nd episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talent in the hospitality industry. Today, we have another special episode from Host Summit Plus Social, our first all-day conference for and about our dynamic hospitality industry, which took place on Monday, January 27th, 2020 at the William Vale in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. HOST, which stands for Hospitality, Operations, Services, and Technology, featured top culinary and hospitality leaders who have all been past guests here on this show with me in informative panel discussions and one-on-one interviews creating a forum for the exchange of ideas and innovation. Over 250 hospitality professionals joined us for our full day of programming, including networking opportunities over fabulous food and drinks. Our overall theme of host 2020 was all in, and this carried throughout the day from my keynote to our curated lunch conversations. Now, This show will be longer than our usual formats. It includes four separate panels and talks from our afternoon session. And as I said on last week's show, which covered our morning session, I realized that a lot has changed in the industry and the world since we hosted host. And that is due to COVID-19, which nobody saw coming. I hope you will still find our conversations to be inspiring and valuable in moving forward through this unprecedented time. Today's episode features the following topics and panelists. Behind the Design, a collaboration between front and back of house with Glenn Coben, founder and president of Glenn & Co Architecture, my guest on episode number five, in conversation with Jimmy Yui, Founding Partner of UE Design, Episode 127. Following that, we have Branding in the Digital Age. Panelists, Eric Bruner-Yang, Chef and Owner of Foreign National, Episode 173. Melanie Dinea, Photographer, Author, and Project Queen, Episode 131. Crystal Movieni, co-founder and CEO of Bento Box, episode 10. Jen Pelka, founder and owner of The Riddler and founder of Magnum PR, episode 236. This was moderated by Dana Cowan, chief brand advisor of Dig Food Group and the host of Speaking Broadly here on Heritage Radio Network, episode 129. 
Following that talk, we have an industry news discussion on the state of our hospitality business. The panelists, Aaron Arespe, Principal of Pocket Fork LLC, Episode 53. Lori Balter, CEO of Balter Sales Company, Episode 239. Rita Jamet, Chief Bubble Officer, La Caravelle Champagne, Episode 32. Mark Rosati, Culinary Director of Shake Shack, Episode 204, moderated by Salvatore Rizzo, Owner and Director of Degustibus Cooking School, Episode 15. And finally, we close out this episode with my keynote address, What It Takes to Be All In. And that's me, Sherry Bayer, the founder of Bayer Public Relations, the host and producer of All in the Industry, and the founder of Host Summit Plus Social. All episodes. (laughs) I have that in my notes. Okay, so I hope you enjoy this episode and all of our content from the afternoon session. And thanks to everyone involved. Here's host. everyone. Welcome back from lunch. Hope you enjoyed everything. I know I did. And I would love to thank our partners that we just all had at our different lunch options, which are Bread's Bakery, The Matzo Project, Baked by Melissa, Cafe Pana, and Luca at the William Vale. So thank you all so much. Now, we are going to kick off the afternoon with our panel, Behind the Design, a collaboration between front and back of the house, a conversation between Glenn Coben and Jimmy Yui. Welcome. Uh, good afternoon. Shari, thank you very much. This has been an amazing morning, amazing day. Congratulations on putting it all together. Um, I'm Glenn Coben. I'm Jimmy Yui. Thanks for having us. Um, we were just having a conversation, and one of the unique things about the relationship that Jimmy and I have is I don't think that we can finish a conversation in 30 minutes. Can we? No, we can't. So We have so many war stories to tell. And we were just talking about one briefly uh, about negative pressure, uh, getting aromas not to leave, kitchens and things like that. So anyway, Jimmy, what's our goal for today? Um, I think, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, we've heard earlier today, which was really interesting, um, the point about how restaurants, in order to succeed, really has to have a very clear narrative, a story. And for me, that uh, narrative and singularity of commitment and, uh, and concept really is what Glenn and I have to hear from our uh, clients and really try to deliver for them so that the clarity is there. And I've always wanted Glenn to tell me how it is that he designs these beautiful restaurants that are so unique by necessity and how he extracts these ideas and translates it into the interior design that he produces. It's sheer luck. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's a great question and and it's a great topic and we've got 28 minutes to try and get at it. But one of the the things, just to give us a little bit of background, a little context, uh, Jimmy and I did our first project together. It opened in 2005, Del Posto. we walked into the space, 
we had actually never worked together. We had met. So I'm assuming it's about 17 years uh, since we walked through it. About a 16,000 square foot raw space that was, uh, did not look like a restaurant, didn't look like you could ever put a restaurant there. It had probably seven or eight different levels. And our client said, we want to do a four-star, New York Times four-star Italian restaurant. And it had never been done before. So how do you start something like that? And I always tell our clients, and one of the things that we would love to get out of this for, for everybody here is, um, how do you hire someone like Jimmy? How do you hire us? What's the process like? Um, the process for that restaurant is very similar to the other projects that we've done. Um, we don't do anything until Jimmy does his work. And that means, how big is the kitchen? Where is the wall that separates the dining room from the kitchen? Where is the door that goes from the kitchen to the dining room? And probably, maybe just as important or more important, how do we get dirty dishes and dirty glasses from the dining room back to the kitchen? and what happens in the kitchen. So that's the that's, magic for... That's true. The, we talk about all the ugly things. You know, I, I want to know where the trash is and how it goes in and out. But in the end, the, what's really important for us I, is that I think uh, because I primarily work for chefs and uh, in creating restaurants, you know, there's an, intri an inherent... Um, focus on the culinary side of it. So kitchen design becomes very, very central to the development of these projects. But in the end, I'm, I'm perfectly cognizant of the fact that that, that that concept that we talked about, the clarity, is really delivered when Glenn creates these incredible interiors. You know, what I do is, I, I often tell my clients that I'm, I'm really a tailor, you know. I want my chefs to tell me, what kind of suit they want to wear. If, they, if it's a pink polka dot suit, I'm going to do everything I can to make you the best pink polka dot suit I know how. But after that, you know, it's really, we're talking about really practical, methodical process things. And once we get the, the basics, like where the trash goes and where the in and out for the dish room is, and I mean, the, the critical things that do affect the performance of a restaurant, then it really is a collaboration with, uh, with Glenn because there's always this incredible tension in the need for real estate. I mean, there's never enough, right? You know, we're always, I, you know, we, we like to say we're putting 10 pounds in an eight pound bag, but it's not, it's not even that. It's probably five, 10 pounds five, in a five, five pound, pound bag, five, right? Five. Yeah. And, and, the, and, the, and we've heard so many times today about the money and the cost of real estate that the math has to be right. You know, we, we have to have the right kitchen so that we can support the concept, but it's got to have the right real estate to support the number of seats to make the P&L work. So this morning I took some notes of, um, and, and just highlighted a couple of words, uh, gratitude, all, all in. Um, there is a, a word that kept coming up, well, in different forms. There was red flag, there was risk, and then there was um, failure, passion, um, and the notion that chefs are evolving. And I don't know if that was Drew or it was JJ. Um, and, it was, and it was essentially the same message. So as chefs evolve, how have you seen your industry change? I know ours has changed in a sense that the stakes are just so much higher. Just as Drew said, you know, the cost of these build-outs, the, the amount of money that 
these projects cost are mind-boggling, and we 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 we're so honored to be able to work with our clients to bring these projects to a reality. But you can't open without a kitchen. But how how is it evolved in your world? And how the next question of that is how do you create a kitchen for a menu that may not exist when you first start the project, but is going to evolve over time? Because we're talking about gigantic restaurants sometimes. Yeah. Um, you know, that was like a multiple <laughs> concepts there, right? The, start with the, the last part, you know, the, we have to ask our clients. I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm really fortunate to work for culinary end of the business, right? I work for chefs. And chefs absolutely, positively, by the time they're getting to guys like us to, to hire to do a project, there is a narrative, there is a story, they have a concept that they believe is that which the consuming public wants to hear from them. So by the time I show up, there is a storyline, and my job is to extract that storyline. We have to ask for a menu, we do, because you know it, even a conceptual menu is really critical. And, and normally, a chef that, that we work for has a conceptual menu, and that's, that's part of their narrative. You know, it's knowing what, what basic flavors they're trying to pursue and what that product, that the guest experience wants to be. So in a sense, you know, by the time I show up to the scene, we, we have a idea that, I mean, you know, it, it, to begin with, you know, I, I'm either working for somebody who's doing an Italian restaurant, a Japanese restaurant, or a, an Alsatian restaurant. And, and in itself, there's, there's, there are flavors and needs that have to be executed. But the, the real question about real estate and the cost is what's really changed. Right. It's so, the, the risk is so high, we've heard it so many times th this morning, that kitchens are really expensive to build, not, not because the equipment in itself is expensive, but because real estate and the development, the infrastructure is so expensive. And it takes away from the budget because it's all stuff that gets buried in walls and it takes away from your, the stuff that people want to experience. I, I always tell our clients when we're, we have weekly construction meetings. So those of you who have done these things, you know all about it. Um, and I, I tell the clients to bring the investors to the project site before the restaurant is complete. It's easy for us to show a beautiful restaurant. They can see the renderings. They don't really understand the floor plans, but they can see the renderings and they can see at the end of the project when the lighting is all balanced and the sound is perfect and the air is balanced and the food is starting to come out of the kitchen. They, they get it. They see that that's what they invested in. But to bring them to the restaurant before the ceilings are closed in. So essentially when we talk about project budgets, 65, 70, 75% of the budget is something that a guest will never see. They'll experience, they'll feel it, they might smell like it if it's not done properly. Um, our first, our topic from before. Um, but to see all the things that are happening behind the scenes, to see the mechanical systems, to see plumbing, to see fire protection, all the, the, the non-sexy things, but the things that make the restaurant function. And that's part of the magic of, you know, we want to open up the curtain so you can see what's going on behind the scenes, at least to the investors. I, I hope you all do that with your, um, with your people. So I guess, you know, the, 
as people who are wanting to, or, or in, the, uh, in the words of uh, Drew Nieborn, don't do it. But if you should be so inclined, you know, and you decide that uh, you have some friendly relatives that are, that are wanting to do this with you. I, it, it's it's mind-boggling. I still, as I said, we're honored, but I think it's also, it's mind-boggling that people will be spending this amount of money for, as Drew said, uh, for such a little return. Um, I or mean, red you have, ink. Or what? Or red ink. Or red ink. But I think the common denominator, and I look at, the way my firm has evolved, we've been in business for 19 years. We, we're taking on fewer and fewer projects. We're taking on fewer and fewer restaurant projects. And it's not because we don't believe in the restaurants. It's that we just want to work with people that truly are passionate about the project, that are going to be there every week. They're going to be... We, we are big on collaboration. We love... You probably... If I listed a number of projects that we've done, you'd probably like, I'd, I mean, Shari sent, said something to me when she ate at one of the restaurants we designed. She, she said, it doesn't look like a restaurant you've designed. Um, and that's the case of all the restaurants. So the, the idea that we're telling these stories for people that are passionate about that story, that menu, that cuisine, that project is... Uh, uh, we're filled with, I'm filled with gratitude, I know you are. Well, and I wanted to just mention something, go back to something that, before I forget it. Somebody in an earlier panel was talking about how, you know, the, there, there's different kinds of restaurants and motivations, right? You know, the, the restaurant standalone where you're asking your relatives to cough up uh, their last cent versus an amenity that belongs to a developer within a building whose purpose may or may not be the, 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 the black ink, the positive uh, cash flow that, uh, that a project might yield. I mean, that, those are like incredibly important distinctions, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, so many of my clients are in that position where they're deemed as beneficial to the add value to the real estate within a building. So that makes the project math a whole lot different then if you were a standalone, I mean, even if you were building, you know, a Lily in, uh, in, in Brooklyn, that would be a whole different kind of math. Right. Is there a project that is easier than others? What makes a project challenging versus easier? And I, I know whenever I say this project is going to be easier, that's the kiss of death. Yeah, it never is, right? <laughs> I, I bet... The, you and I would share um, what makes projects easy and what makes them hard. And I, I think it really does start first with the clarity of intention. If we don't have clarity of intention from the owners, if they can't articulate it, or if so, it, you know, th there was this talk about putting it on a business card, I'm not entirely sure that uh, a restaurant concept can be percolated into three sentences on the back of the back of a business card, but in fact, it, we are really talking about that, right? Right. The first time that I heard someone refer to what has become a bit of a mission statement for me was you in an interview with Gabrielle Kreuther. And I knew you had gotten the job, but I also knew that it, it was not a newfound respect, but it was, as I said, this mission statement. You said, chef, I need to understand the soul of your kitchen. 
And <clears throat> to me, that has translated to finding the soul of each and every single restaurant. So I thank you for that. But the, that, how do you go through that process? And I, I, didn't, I didn't mean that to be a buzzword. You know, I, I, I think the, we dance around these sentences about singular ideas, you know, um, clear clarity of narrative. And, 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 I, and I think one, a word that works for me is trying to percolate and understand the soul of a human being. You know, the chef who is the operator and the flavor master and the storyteller. And I want to know, I want to understand the soul of that person and the soul of that project. And then Glenn and I at least have some ground to stand on to try to deliver what that means in physical terms. You know, whether it's kitchen equipment or the furniture selection, I think we're really, really trying to understand exactly what kind of pink polka dot you really meant when you said you wanted a pink polka dot suit. Um, what was the first restaurant that you ever designed? Um, the first, or I guess, you know, the first really, really important restaurant that I did was... Uh, McDonald's? With Drew no, worth there? No. Actually, I, I wish I'd, I'd been uh, drafted to, uh, to be in the, uh, the ground floor of McDonald's, but I wasn't. Um, I, I did, um, for Barry Wine, um, when the Quilla Giraffe, way back when, was purchased by Sony, and the, uh, the Chippendale building on uh, Madison Avenue turned into Sony headquarters, my first really, really important project was doing a five-seat sushi bar for Sony Corporation under the direction of Barry Wine, whose instruction to me was, Chairman Morita has to feel like he's at home when he's eating in this five-seat sushi bar, but when Janet Jackson shows up, she better think it's the coolest fucking room on the planet. <laughs> that was the program. That's awesome. I love that. Um, the first restaurant that I designed was not, um, unfortunately it wasn't with you, um, it was with another uh, kitchen designer, so I did cheat on you. He cheats on me. Yeah. Um, but it, it also uh, formulated a lot of my approach to projects. It was um, Washington Park with Jonathan Waxman, and I had just started my firm, and I met Jonathan at the space, and we did, you know, some free renderings and did some floor plans and he called me up and he said, okay, young man, you've got the job. And I, I said, well, let's go celebrate. And he goes, there's no time to celebrate. I just need to have a, a conversation with you in the space. So I go down to the space and he puts his arm around me and he goes, again, young man. Um, he said, uh, look around, very small space. Is Jonathan in here, by the way? He's gonna punch me. Uh, <laughs> But he said, um, I don't know if you know much about me. I have a fairly large ego, and this is a very small space. So leave your ego outside, listen to what I want, and deliver me a beautiful restaurant. And Jonathan, yes. Um, and we'll be good. And it was the beginning of my career. I had never really imagined that I was going to spend 19 years designing restaurants. Uh, we don't only do restaurants, but they're a lot of fun. They're very sexy, get to meet and work with great people. But um, 
it was a very important lesson to learn very early on that uh, these, these are very personal statements for these chefs and to deliver on what their vision is. Not my vision, but on well, their that's, vision. That's really the, you know, the very much the, the theme of this thing, all in, right? You know, I can, I can tell you without a doubt that my clients, the chefs that I work for are, never mind all in, you know? This is, we, we are talking about people with incredible commitment and sacrifice to deliver a guest experience that, you know, as it turns out, are popular with the consuming public, and that's why I have work. I, I want to say something about, you know, the, the, in delivering these restaurant designs, right? I, I can't, when you have to uh, go hire an architect and interior designer for your project, I can't tell you how often people in this business, Glenn's business, designing restaurants, really have no inkling at satisfying the pragmatic needs of a restaurant. I'm not entirely sure how that came to be, but I can't imagine, you know, like you're a designer wanting to do a restaurant, but you don't really understand or don't care about how it functions. And that's so, such an important thing. So if you guys are ever in this position of hiring somebody, you know, hire him, but if, you, if, if you're not hiring him, you, gotta, you really wanna know that they have some sensitivity towards the practical aspects of what you do, which is ultimately, it's gotta make money and it's gotta be a viable business. Well, it, it, thank you. Um, don't just hire us. I mean, there's some amazing designers in here uh, and amazing architects, but the, it goes back to the initial statement that I said when working with the consultant team, with wor working with Jimmy or working with some of the amazing, uh, the other amazing food service designers, it's really setting out a clear and concise process. So where does the food come in? Where are the deliveries? How does, how, as I said, how does the food get from the kitchen to the dining room? And how do things get back into the kitchen? Um, never speak to the bartender about the, bar t the layout of the bar. Um, Jonathan told me that one. Um, but to really focus on process, so before the, the easiest part of designing a restaurant is what is it going to look like? The hardest part is how does it function? I mean, yes, it, it, there's a lot of magic involved with... See, see this with, is with where, this. you know, we keep talking about this, right? Because in my mind, the easy part is figuring out the mechanics, you know? Like, you're not going to put the dish room on the other side of the planet, right? You don't want to do that. But, you know, how you make the guest feel happy, comfortable, belong, that is consistent with the narrative that another human being, the chef, the owner with the idea. How do you get there? I mean, that's, that's like really, really hard. I mean, it's, it's, the, the, it's why we keep doing this. In order to tell each of these stories, um, I, tell, I tell people this story about working with Gabrielle Kreuther which we loved. I mean, we, yeah. we love all the chefs, where most of the chefs we've worked with, but, uh, <laughs> but um, that one in particular, he was such a consummate tour guide for everything from his past and where he wanted to, where, where he started out in Strasbourg and in Alsace and then came to New York and every kitchen that he worked in and it was impeccable. His food is impeccable. He's an impeccable human being, but the way he told his story to us was 
uh, it, it was so vivid that we actually didn't have to go to Strasbourg or Alsace in order to find these stories. And I remember, I don't know if Drew is here, but we were struggling to try and find a bar stool for the restaurant. And uh, Gabrielle and I went to Batard, and we were having a meal, and we were drinking a lot of wine. And That made it comfortable. Yeah. And I did a sketch of the bar stool that's in the restaurant. And the bar stool in the back has a heart that's carved out of the back of the stool. And it's a pretty modern looking bar, bar stool. When the stools were delivered to the restaurant, the, uh, the, the psalm, the main psalm, said she was almost in tears. And she came from Strasbourg and she said, this is Chef Gabrielle saying, welcome to my restaurant. And just that little move, that little heart, that heart that is like the pineapple in the rest of the world. The heart is the symbol of hospitality in the region. And I would bet that a majority of the guests that come into that restaurant just like the heart. It's pretty. Um, but They don't know why they like it, but they, they do. Yeah, and I think that that's... If we can find meaning, and I always tell people this story, that, that design shouldn't be a random decision. Design should be based upon a narrative that's set from the very beginning of the project that all the stakeholders agree upon. So inevitably, there's going to be a light fixture that's missing from the restaurant that we just, I mean, there are only a thousand decisions that have to be made, but uh, how, when you have to find something else to fill in that missing piece, you shouldn't have to open a catalog and choose from a thousand things. You should be able to narrow it down to the, the language that we've dis, dis, discussed and agreed upon in terms of the narrative. Yeah, which is why on the ownership side, our clients, you guys having the clarity of your intentions when these questions do come up, it shouldn't be an open-ended question, you know? It's supposed to have been filtered down to the point where the decisions become rational and it might not be automatic, but certainly there should be some feel and sense of belonging in how these decisions get made. And don't let your designer ever say, we don't want you to collaborate. We want, we want our clients to roll up your sleeves and to be part of the process. I think you, I, I mean, to see you at work with, with chefs pouring over drawings or even on a computer, I mean, it, that, that's the best part I don't know how else you do this, you know? I mean, it's like you tell your haircut or how you want your haircut, right? You know, you don't, you don't go in blind and shut up and hope for the best, so it's... I do. You do? Yeah. I just close, I take off my glasses and I say, surprise me. Okay. <laughs> see? I don't know. <laughs> But, I, you know, the, I, I think, you know, the, all the conversations that we've heard today about all in and, you know, how expensive things are and how risky things are, I think it really does percolate down to one's intentions and how clear and how committed you are. And then we, in turn, if we can decipher the soulfulness of that statement, hopefully we can deliver accordingly. Agreed. And I think... We have every once in a while. Once in a while. Yeah. <laughs> and then when things go sideways, which happens? It's always the architect's fault. It's, <laughs> it's always his fault. <laughs> I think okay. it says zero. It said zero for a while. I think it means we overran. I love an audience that gets so quiet quickly. That's, that's great. Hi, guys. 
Okay, you're also really quiet. Can we make some noise? Hi, guys. Hi. Oh, that's so much better. I feel better. Um, I'm Dana Cowan. I have this incredible um, panel. You, um, I'm sure you know some of the amazing people on it already, but for the sake of introductions, what I'm going to do is have each person talk a little bit about themselves and their vision of branding in the digital age. Because as Jen Polka said, um, you say brand and people hear and think very different things. So just so that we know what we're talking about when we talk about brand, what it means to each of you, um, and we can go from there. So Crystal, why don't you just hop on? Great. Um, my name is Crystal Mobiani. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Bento Box, and it's a platform for restaurants to help them own their online presence. We help restaurants connect with their guests and own their profits online, primarily starting with their website. Um, and so for us, for me answering this question, it's sort of two parts. One is how do we help restaurants represent their brand in a digital age where there's so many different third parties and apps trying to take... Um, kind of take a piece of their guest relationship, their brand, the message that they're trying to create, the experience that they create in that brick and mortar, and how do they translate that online through their little piece of the internet, which they own, which is their website. So there's that. And then um, the other part is our, our own brand, our Bento Box brand. Um, and how do we, as a technology company, make sure that we're continuing to connect and resonate with the hospitality industry? What are the things that we've built into our culture and our mission and our values that help us um, you know, uh, create a brand that really resonates with, um, with the restaurant industry? So you're really saying that you're a twofer. <laughs> twofer. You have, you've got your own brand and then you have all the um, restaurant brands. But do you, do you want to just define like... Um, what are the pillars of your own brand? Uh, for, Bento Box? for Bento Box? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we have our mission. We start with our mission, which is um, empowering the world's restaurants to succeed in their mission of hospitality. And we do that through our vision, um, which is being the technology that elevates every interaction between the restaurant and the guest. And then under that, we have three main pillars that hold up our mission and vision, which are hospitality, taste, and bottom line. And then out of those two, three, we have then nine principles, which I won't get into because you know, will take a little bit. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, but those three pillars are, you know, basically everything runs out of that. But I think that's, I mean, that in itself is sort of like a, um, a brand playbook, right? That you ha start with the mission, you go to the vision, you have the underlying, you call them principles. Oh, we have our pillars. Your yeah, pillars, and, 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 yeah. Right. And so that is the way, a lens which a lot of people um, brainstorm around defining their brand. So we can get into that later, but it's a great place to start. Great. Jen. Hi, I'm Jen Pelka. I'm the founder of The Riddler, which um, is a group of champagne bars. We have one in San Francisco, and we just opened our second location in October in the West Village. Um, woo, woo. Thanks, Dana. Um, and I'm also launching a champagne brand um, in two weeks. So I'm excited about that. Does that have anything to do with what's at your feet? It might. Um, so what I was going to say is a, a lot of what I think about is how you live the brand. And so obviously I brought some champagne with me uh, for all of my fellow speakers. So I'll just... 
I'll give you the little rundown. Um, so the brand is called Un Femme. Here, pass it down, pass it down. Uh, the brand is called Un Femme. It's all about women. So we have all female winemakers. Um, and each of the wines um, is named after the woman who's making it. And um, we, here, I'll pass you some glasses. Um, and a percentage of proceeds will benefit Dresser Success. But the reason why we're launching the brand is because it really is an extension of everything that we do at the Riddler, which our goal is to build the best champagne brands in the world. And with that, we want to do a lot of champagne education. We want to introduce people to really cool champagnes, different styles of winemaking. Um, and also a big part of our brand is that all of our investors are women. Um, and so it's a natural thing for us to do brand partnerships with female winemakers as well. So what do you think of crystals? Like, the, do you have that same? We do. Um, ours is a little bit less formalized than at Bento, but uh, we talked about this a lot. Um, Crystal is actually one of our investors, which is so cool. Um, and um, it's something that we want to get a little bit more tight about. I mean, for us, we really want to build the best champagne bars in the world. And so that comes down to the people who are on our team, our um, our training, uh, the way that we work with our purveyors, and the way that we provide hospitality to our guests. Um, but every day we're thinking about how we can formalize those things a bit more, especially as we grow. Does it matter? I mean, because it, you know, for Crystal, she feels like it matters for you. You've done an exceptional job at building a brand, apparently not as rigidly. Um, I, think it, I think it helps. Yeah, I mean, I think it does matter. It's something that we think a lot about, but we haven't... Um, we haven't gone through the practice of like hiring an agency to help us figure it out explicitly. And it's obviously an exercise we could do internally. And we do a lot of talking about these sorts of things within our team. But... Um, do you feel like you need an agency? I don't know that we need an agency. You used an agency, right? No, no we didn't. Oh, you actually, did it all your we, own. So. We, had a, we had a consultant help us. But I think, um, to your point, uh, I think waiting a couple of years and just letting th the dust settle and really seeing where you're landing and where your place is and having being able to communicate it is 100% is okay and totally a good way to go about it. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I think that's actually really great advice for people who are trying to solidify their brand, right? Because you don't know. And actually, Eric, it'd be really interesting to hear you talk about this. Um, but you don't always know what you built until like your customer tells you or until later in the process. So you can have the best intentions of mission, brand, vision, and then it's like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have, you know, gone so full force. Um, do you have any thoughts on that before we? Um, I'm definitely the representation of the anti-brand on the panel. <laughs> so, uh, uh, sorry, introduce yourself and then. Uh, sorry, yes, my name's Eric Brunner-Yang. I'm a restaurateur based out of Washington, D.C. Um, my company is called Foreign National, and we have four very different restaurants um, in the uh, DMV area. And you're representing the anti-brand on um, the panel. I, well, we've had a couple of pre-conferences, and it's amazing to share these stages with these like badass boss ladies here, um, and they just like so intelligent. And you know, I've been kind of spending the week, the last kind of week, to just figure out how I can express what we do because I do think we have very strong brands, um, but uh, our message is not communicated in any form or fashion. Um, and I think. Ours is really about the or organic experience and then basically what the customer experience ends up translating what the brand ultimately becomes. So I think that's usually our style. So 
you do have a brand because people will follow you, right? They find out that you're opening this restaurant and they're like, oh my God, Eric's behind that, I totally wanna go, which means that you actually have a lot of brand equity but you haven't done it the way these guys have, which is setting a mission except you, mission, vision, except you inhabit it, right? So Correct. you represent an entire group of people who inhabit a vision and, and what you say, the what you say is the right thing for the brand, so-called, is right because it comes from you? Is that what you Yeah, mean? it's very intuitive. And at this point, we're 250 employees, and we don't have a mission statement. We don't have core brand values. Um, but we've had employees work for us for over a decade. And the company itself is about that intuition of customer service, customer service to the guest, and customer service to us as employees. Um, but it has, it stems you know, from me and how we branch out from that. I don't think our company would exist without these other employees that have worked for us for so long and have embraced it. Um, and then long term, we're in the, I'm personally in that transition where, you know, how does that become a vehicle for longevity? So as an entrepreneur, I've been in business for eight years, as a chef, 19, um, but what's the next decade gonna be? And it can't just be based on my gut anymore, um, or it can. That's like the question that needs to be answered by myself, I guess. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very good question. Um, what do you think it is um, from within you, like if you asked either the customers or the people who work with you, because they have to live your values every day because it's the company's values, like how would they identify it even if you wouldn't necessarily describe it that way yourself? Uh, besides them thinking I'm a maniac, um, I just, I love restaurant work, and I love the restaurant, and I love what we create. Every restaurant is not, is different, a different type of cuisine, a different representation of my style. Um, we're in heavily gentrified areas, so they become very important fabrics of the communities that we're in. Originally, all my restaurants were within the same three, four block radius, so it was very much just about uplifting where I live and participating in that. And now that we've branched into other neighborhoods, um, trying to figure out what that means moving forward becomes harder um, and still evolving, I think. But I think people have a sense of ownership of our places. They're very like passionate about them. And then there's people who love my restaurants who also hate other versions of my, you know, they, they love one but not the other. And it's been interesting to see that happen. And um, I like that. Okay, we need to, like, so many things to ask you. <laughs> we'll get back to them, though. I mean, community is a really interesting topic for everybody, what community means to you, and that there's different variations of that. And also, it's interesting to me that you have people who are really connected to your brand that hate parts of it, because you would think um, that if they buy into the concept, they'd buy into any one of the suite of them. So we'll get back to that. Um, Melanie. How did I get on this panel? I'm so excited. <laughs> Hi, I'm Melanie Dunay. I really am, I think it's actual a professional victory to be on a panel about branding. I'm a photographer. Um, I've done six books, but the ones you might know the best are called My Last Supper, which were two books um, celebrating chefs and the, you know, um, the cultural movement that I saw. Um, and that was when the um, restaurant and the hospitality business really welcomed me, much more than the celebrity and the other, which I am endlessly grateful for. Um, 
my brand is me and my photographs. And really, it's my photographs and my storytelling, even though that I'm going to use a lot of overused words now. <laughs> um, but, you know, I see my brand, if you call it, um, my job is to transfer information. That is it. So I hope that when you look at my work, and uh, whether it's with my voice or whether, you know, because I do tend to not just do photography, sometimes I do radio, TV, or weird performance art, and I hope that whatever I do at the moment tells the story best. So it's a bit of an eclectic brand, um, but I hope that every time you look at my work, you see, wow, that's that person, or you feel connected. And it's a unique experience, and I, I need, we need to talk, because I need pillars and things. <laughs> because uh, my, you know, my gut, my intuition, my um, th uh, desire to get to the core of the story is what drives me. And um, it, there's so much, oh my God, there's money and booze on this stage. <laughs> so exciting. <laughs> Best panel ever, I told you. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I, I strive and I struggle a lot because I don't have 250 employees. Right now I have zero. And I struggle all the time with myself and how do I keep going, build the business, explain the business, share the business, and keep on track. So I have a lot of conversations in the mirror. <laughs> I mean, I, th I think one of the things that we were talking about, uh, about your brand, is that if people think um, Melanie photographer, that is only one piece of it, and what are the levers that you can use, bad word, but to express yourself appropriately in all the different mediums and all the different use, right? And th those things are similar because even though you're one person and you're one person but several businesses, there's the question of like, how do you represent yourself and in what mediums? So I feel like that's a good transition to talk about the ways in which we exist across the digital landscape as brands and Crystal, I know that you have thoughts about um, the ways in which you are not the same. I mean, you're the same essence, but you're not the same across the, the landscape when you're building a brand. You can talk about that a little? Yeah, um, um, both for us and for our restaurants, really see the different channels and the different touch points between social media, your website, whether it's podcast, video, as things that should be complementary and not repetitive, and thinking about those different channels of how different parts of your brand can manifest itself. Um, in Would a you way mind just for like um, the purpose of explication to take a brand and just say, you know, what is it? Like, what does it feel like? Like, what is the voice? Because you're going to start, like, no matter what, you're going to start with the voice and what the brand represents, right? Like, you have, to, you have to have that core, but then the way in which it's represented across the different mediums, it's responsive. So do you, is there something that comes to mind, or is that too hard a question and on the fly? And for, um, for ourselves? Could be for, for yourself or for your... Yeah. So um, one way, so I'll try to think about... Um, 
the way that we use Instagram, for example, is very different than the way that we use like blog content and video. The way we use Instagram is we're all about highlighting our customer base and our community and our chefs. Um, the medium really lends itself to it. It's a really community-based type of uh, medium. And um, we're all about the stories that restaurants have and, and we find Instagram is a good place to tell that. And then our blog content and um, video is much more about education. Like how can we help restaurants actually become smart marketers? How can we educate them on things like um, uh, setting up their uh, successful like online ordering program or how to deal with ADA and so those are things that we don't just take the same thing we did in Instagram and just translate it exactly to, to video or to our blog we really think about the mediums and how they're consumed and and the best places best ways to highlight different things. are there are there other mediums that you use I mean newsletter um, yeah. digital marketing so like Facebook I mean I don't know if that's of interest to you at all but Paid, yeah. earned. Yeah. yeah. TikTok. We, we are not on TikTok. Um, not sure if it's our audience. <laughs> That's where you belong. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, we also use LinkedIn, but it's almost exclusively for recruiting. So we, it's a completely different, it's, it's, we, you know, highlight our employees and we talk about different things that are more like focused on the startup e ecosystem than the restaurant ecosystem. Um, newsletters, newsletters very much about um, like aggregating content and product updates. Um, and yeah, we do paid advertising and um, which is much more about like adding value and, and product and, and, uh, and features that we have. So yeah, we use all of these different channels in different ways. You were going to ask a question. No, I was just going to say, it's like that meme that happened this weekend with Dolly Parton, with yeah. the LinkedIn, that was awesome. totally. Facebook, Instagram, and, you know, insert your dating app of choice. <laughs> that part got very political. Um, but yeah, thinking about how you can have one... Um, well, I was listening to, to something that somebody was talking about yesterday, where they were saying, like, how many different ways can you do a cartwheel? Like a cartwheel is still a cartwheel, but you can do it like a million different ways. And how do you make it always be a cartwheel? It's kind of the same thing when you're thinking about your brand. It's in so many different places, uh, in many different ways. And how is it always the same thing? But one thing about that is I think that we are in an era where we're really thinking so much about communicating our brands that I think we're losing a little sight of the work. You know, just a little bit. I think there's a lot of, well, does this get hits? Does this do well? Does this, I mean, I can see, like, look at my Instagram, and there are numbers up and down and all around. And, you know, I want to post about something I want to post about, not a ice cream cone that has sprinkles on it, which I know will get hits, or myself, which I know will get, you know. So sometimes I, I waver, not, and that's where an outsider is helpful to say, well, you know, this is this, this is, dilutes the work sometimes, I, I feel. But I think that what you're also saying, not saying, is in Instagram is your communication tool. And not everybody works across all platforms, right? Like you're not gonna be on LinkedIn, it's not germane to your business. You're um, probably not gonna be on TikTok, depending on what your purpose is. Um, <laughs> but you know, sometimes you just wanna pick your best medium, or you wanna pick, right, Eric, what were you gonna, where do you guys live? Um, I would say, like for me, you know, I used to play music, and um, we missed the entire internet moment, right? And it was devastating to the band because we we were, we had really great traction, 
And then as soon as everything went digital, there were like the bands that were amazing that completely missed it, and then everything just changed. And then I feel like in terms of the way branding works digitally now is that I would say that my restaurants have very high digital brand value, but it doesn't mean that I'm making money, right? So I would love to have a $3 million restaurant that has, that's making $3 million a year, that has zero online presence, and that just functions on its own without having to think about those things, just like it was, you know, just 10 years ago or so, where it was just like you can have a great restaurant in a great neighborhood, and you didn't have to worry about anything except for the 50, 60 people that you were feeding every day. Because at the end of the day, if I have a huge digital brand value, I can't sell it. It's not really worth anything unless I want to build 20 of them. Um, and that's not where I live, but that's what we spend so much time doing. So, Or unless potentially a, you wanted to do an e like something in e-commerce, yeah. right? You could flip them because it's the... So that's the... But you don't want to do that. That's the... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Lazy. Um, yeah. I, I like, if you don't mind me commenting on Please. this idea of e-commerce, which I, um, I like. It sparked an idea of something that we do for our restaurants is give them, you know, the tools to be able to sell things that are very specific to restaurants, whether it's tickets or classes or merchandise, if they have a hot sauce or if they have a t-shirt guitar or whatever is, we saw a lot of wellness items being sold recently. Um, and what's really cool about that is it helps restaurants actually bec start become like more lifestyle brands, which I think that you've perfected really well. Um, and it kind of helps you have a relationship with the, with the guest outside of just the four walls of the brick and mortar. And I think that's a really special opportunity and, and a really cool thing to be able to give to your, to your customer base. So, well, we could talk about um, the ways in which, you know, brand, we're talking about the digital life of a brand, um, but also how it communicates in the, the real world. Um, and, Jen, you were talking about, you're pouring champagne <laughs> and bringing your brand to yeah. life. Did anyone drink the champagne? I don't think we've had any yet. No. But, Here, um, cheers. 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 Sorry, be jealous. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> Where's your glass? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, down, down the hatch of the bottle. Yeah. Uh, no glasses. Um, no, I mean, I think brand is not, is not only your digital assets, but it's really like, it, I, when I well, think about brand... Isn't, but just in the case of amplifying. But anyway, yeah. When I think of brand, I think about what, what are the things that people say about you or your company? Like what, and... Wait, wait, I have to interrupt you. Jeff Bezos, the quote. Does everyone know the quote? Brand is what people say about you when you're on the rim. Oh, yeah. That's great. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think that that's really true. One of the things that um, I think a lot about is how, um, how can you be the first, the best, or the only at something? Um, I have a PR company as well, and that's what we talk to all of our clients about. As they're sort of defining what their mission is and who they're going to be, what they, um, they want to be known for, like, I think there's great power in saying, I want to be the best... Um, German bakery in, you know, on X Street, or I want to be the best champagne bar in the world, or I want to be, you know, have, having some superlative is very editorial, it's very interesting, and it also is, like, really remarkable and, and memorable for people who are interacting with your brand. It's also extremely powerful for your team. I think one of the greatest extension points of who you are as a brand is everybody on your team and how they communicate your vision to your customers. Um, so sometimes that comes through um, 
you know, in the four walls of your space. Sometimes those are through digital assets that you're creating and that you own. Um, sometimes that's through your team, but also a lot of it is through the way that people are talking about and interacting with your brand. So if we're talking about social, the things that people are putting up on their own channels about you, your company, your brand, being in your space, talking about or bragging about how they got access to something within your brand. Um, and it's not only what you put out there, but truly what people say about you. And how do you make sure what they say about you is what you want them to say? Well, I think you can create really easy moments for them to uh, interact with your brand. For us, we have all sorts of visual touch points throughout the restaurants that are really easy for people to capture. So for example, our tables have our tagline, which says, hello, old friend. They're these beautiful cafe tables and like everyone, they're, they're white tables with little black writing and everybody can take a really great photo from overhead. And so it's got our literal brand and then sort of the tagline of our brand. Um, in the bathroom in New York, we have one of those like emergency, in case of emergency, break glass things, but instead of a fire hydrant or an ax, it is a bottle of Krug, like a massive <laughs> bottle of Krug. So like that's really easy to take photos of. And that doesn't actually have our literal brand on it, but we see it across Instagram constantly. Um, and we do other fun things. What about your, your reserved? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> our reserve signs say like, reserved for Michelle Obama or reserved for Oprah. Or reserved for RGB. And, and none of them say, have come in yet, but they always have <laughs> seats reserved for them. <laughs> and you'll see on Instagram when you see the reserved, like the comments are like, oh my God, was she really there? Oh, That's yeah. amazing. <laughs> That's yeah. a particularly excellent um, visual opportunity. Yeah, it's just a fun thing. I mean, I think for us, we realize that champagne is a very intimidating subject. It's an intimidating price point. It's confusing to understand. So we're always thinking about the touch points between high and low. So the idea that you can drink $150 champagne with a burger, or um, in San Francisco, our, our main item that we have are tater tot waffles. So we take tater tots and we put them in a waffle iron, but then we put like caviar or smoked salmon or truffles on top. So people understanding that there's like a sense of humor to our brand is something that's really important. But I think regularly, as we add new dishes to the menu, like how, how is this gonna translate to the guest? Is it going to be memorable? Is it gonna play? And we want everything to be extremely delicious um, and to provide value, but I do think of almost every choice that we make through the lens of brand. Like does this, is this a specifically remarkably Riddler oriented thing? But I think that's sort of how we have to think now because I joined Instagram and was like, I'm getting a bikini wax. This is the view. <laughs> Seriously, I really did. And people said to me, you need to put your photography up there. And I, I said, I have a fabulous website. Please, everybody go to my website. It's beautiful. Um, I, I really, and you know, it is true. You do, and I do. I mean, I make a joke, but I think, I'm constantly surprised if I put an old picture of Kanye West or whatever, and I tell this story, people want to hear the story. And everybody in this room has a camera and everyone will take a picture and they'll probably pretty, be pretty damn good. And you do have to sort of figure out in the changing world, how do you, how are you unique? 
How do well, you stick well, out? Well, that's, I mean, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I was talking to Ben Leventhal, founder of Eater, now founder of Resi, the other day. And he, I was like, how have you seen restaurants change? And he was saying, the biggest thing is that people no longer just want to go to the big, splashy restaurant. They want to go to the restaurant where they understand and they know who the owner or the founder or the chef is. And they follow that person. They know what that person was doing on their day off. They know how many kids they have. They know where their house, like, they know all of the stuff about the person. <laughs> Stalker. <laughs> <laughs> and it, I think it puts us as operators in a really weird place. So let's hear what you have to say about that, Eric. That, that's me. Yeah, that's you. That's you. I, I, I got here a little bit early, and I just had a baby that's like two weeks old. And um, I, be, I was like, I need a haircut. And then I was like, I'm going to go get a haircut. But Sherry would have killed me if I was late. And then I was like, I'm going to come to this panel without a hat. And then that would have been... Part of my personal brand is I probably even wear this hat to bed. <laughs> um, it's like my comfort blanket. And then no one would recognize me. But no, I think like, yes, it's very true. Um, and I've had a lot of ups and downs in my career and, and people have followed them and are very in, in touch with it. It's very personal, personable and um, sometimes it's a bit too much. But at the same time, like, it's been a, it's been a wonderful journey. So I don't really know... That's why I said the big question is, is am I, does it have to continue to be an extension of me or will it long-term have its own life? How does it feel? Like, What type of choices do you make in terms of what you share and what you don't share? I have a lot of opinions about things that I feel like I don't want to be the person to spearhead a, a particular conversation um, and, or represent a certain issue because there's others that are more eloquent at it than I am even though I have very strong feelings because I, it, that's not really what my brand is. My brand is more about creating a space where people can have those conversations but not be the person that is leading or has an opinion about it, whether I have one or not. Um, and I feel like people do at this point, we're like, well, what do you think about um, wage equality or this or that? And I'm like, I have feelings about it, but because of my personal past experience, I don't really want to be in that bubble. And what's the personal past experience? Um, so my first restaurant was, was, was Toki Underground, which where we met and yeah. Dana gave me my first national write-up in food and wine uh, back in 2011. <laughs> um, and it was amazing. I remember going to her office and it was just probably talked as poorly as I am now, but. You're doing great. <laughs> um, but uh, I ended up losing the restaurant and I ended up getting sued um, and um, it was like the cover of the style section of the Washington Post. They brought, dragged my wife into it. It took four years to resolve. Uh, we lost our health insurance with our first child. Um, and this was when I was like very much like doing all the events, doing this and doing that. And I, since, since then, I think I've been like the guy that's very accessible, but very unapproachable, but still super nice. And I kind of like to stay in that realm. That's, that's, a, it's a, it's a, that's a hard matrix, actually, yeah. to be accessible, but don't talk to me. Um, <laughs> so it, it, this brings up, the, I mean, everything we're talking about really comes back to perhaps the most critical question in voice, in brand, which is voice. You know, what do you, what do you sound like? What do you cover? What do you look like? Um, because... That's what, like, you were talking about all the ways in which you're different across um, different mediums, but actually there's ways in which you're completely this, the same, and, and the thing that's the same, 
one would imagine is how you sound and perhaps how you look, not the content, like one's educational um, and one's more community, but how do any of you th think about like the origin of the tone and the visual setting of the brand? Because from there you become invincible, right? You become separated from your competition because um, you don't look like them or sound like them and you really set yourself apart. Yeah, go for it. Uh, well, Jen and I were talking about this last night, and voice, tone of voice is a really hard one, and especially um, the way, you know, we have so many different employees that are representing us, and we have so many different restaurants that we're representing, so I find tone of voice to be a, a harder one, so I'm just going to focus, the one that I find easier based on, like, what our experience is, is the visual. Wait, no, that's just so interesting. Like, why is voice... Why is the voice that hard? And then who has the answer to the voice problem? I think it's hard because there's so many variables from whoever is executing the voice. So let's say you have, in your case, how many employees? 180, something like that? 120. 120, and 40 of them are consumer-facing? I don't know. More, just, more. Okay. More, like so everybody half. on your support team has to respond to questions from the public constantly. And so you can give them... Um, a list of say this, don't say this, say this, don't say this, but you also want to give them agency to make their own decisions, and they have their own personalities, which you want to give them a little bit of freedom there. So it's really hard to like construct how they're going to interact with the world. But you <laughs> still need it, right? You need to know whether they're like funny or they're serious, right. or they're like because they, you need to have a consistent experience. Right. Yeah. One thing that we lean on is um, one thing that uh, a customer once said. Um, before we ever did our like mission, vision, and pillars was that Bento Box treats us the way that we treat our guests, and that's something that we always come back to and how we interact, and, and I guess that kind of pours into the tone of voice, but like Jen said, yeah, you don't want to give people a script of how you talk, because that canned vibe is like very obvious and very inauthentic, and be authentic is actually one of our principles, so, um, but with the visual side, I think we, we've got a good Okay, let's go on the visual thing. side. <laughs> well, I mean, it's just, I mean, it's, it's very simple. It's just having, like, brand colors and, and font. But it's not necessarily simple to everybody. So, um, brand colors. <laughs> What'd you choose? Exactly, font. Uh, what did we choose? Yeah. Um, well, we have this palette of these different grays and kind of these, these orange, like, orangey reds. And we give each one of the colors, like, a, a name that kind of represents it goes back to our brand, so we have tomato is one of our main colors, soy is another one of our colors, sparkling water, um, and so, you know, it all kind of connects, they're like little details, but it all ties in together that we work with the hospitality industry and... and but the details are really important, particularly when you have a lot of employees who, you know, need to understand the brand, like every touch point that you have with your team allows them to understand the brand better and then represent it better. Yeah, and I really related to what you said. What was it? Ex accessible, but don't talk. How did you? Uh, you I don't know. It was like accessible. Ex we can rewind the tape. Accessible, <laughs> but don't, don't, something like don't talk. And I, I feel like uh, I, I really relate to that. And the way that I've really solved that is put a lot of the brand on our, um, on our team and have them really embody it and represent it because I just, yeah, I feel, I really relate to you. I'm like a very very understated and reluctant type of leader in some way. Um, and so the one thing that we do is we have like our culture awards where we, everyone wins 
every, twice a year we do like sashes where someone wins one of the principles and it's, and it's oh. a great way to kind of like That's put cool. the responsibility on the team rather than it always having to come from me because that would, I would be miserable if I had that responsibility. <laughs> It's also, you know, I mean, it's a leadership principle as much as that's a brand principle. I mean, a principle of leadership being don't have it all be about you. It's really all about your team. Yeah, I mean, I also wear two hats, right? I have my own business. And then in July, I started as the executive chef of Ampizza, which is a big regional pizza chain here, which is very like, this is our brand. These are our pillars. Here are the socks, you know, and <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. And that was, for me, I took that job because I was looking for professional inspiration, essentially. Like every day everyone looks to me for the answers. I've been doing that for so long. I was just kind of craving a chance to be a part of a team that's solving a problem instead of being the person that's supposed to solve all of the problems. Um, but one of the things I came and I lived in New York for two months and it was really great. Um, opened the, the Wall Street store and their brand is very black and white. Um, and the ampersand represents the people and their vision for how they treat people and the product. And it's just so impressive. Um, but I was like, this only will last in your suburban markets. In the suburbs, this vision will last 10, 15, 20 years, and it will always be interesting. But in New York, this isn't going to work. In New York, or if you go to Chicago, or you go to these other cities, where you don't have that same connection of being this regional and, and you're translating it out is this brand is so visually strong and so in the box that it's going to end up um, killing you. In, I think what you're saying maybe is that um, when the brand is that strong and it's timely, like they're black and white and yeah. the boldness of it is a moment in the suburbs, the moment lasts longer. But yeah. um, when you're that heavily branded, you can be... Oh, the, it can be done. It's like, well, there's a new pizza concept that's so much more fun. So that's, um, that's actually like a fascinating brand challenge, right? How yeah, do you build it, a brand to be flexible? Yeah, and then it's, for them, my challenge was them as like, you want to have an executive chef for craft your own pizza, but craft your own pizza, so many limitations because of like how much each ingredient needs to charge so you can, what we call casseroles, so you can build yourself a pizza casserole um, and still function. And then... So, but if you don't want to change and expand out of the walls you've already created, you're always going to be limited. So it's not, it's okay to change your font, even though it feels so gut-wrenching. It's okay to add a color. It's okay to, you know, do this. And the, the markets that are tougher, where you have to be more competitive, will find that you care more about being in the market that they are because you've chosen to adapt and you've chosen to make it more neighborly. I think that's a, it's such a fascinating thing because a lot of brand preaching is like, okay, when you build a brand, everything has to match, right? Like every, um, every font has to match, whether it's signage or collateral or um, website, every color has to match. But when you go to huge brands um, like Amazon, they don't match at all. And like that was my first experience of, oh my God, they actually, you know, all the different sites within Amazon, it's a, like as a designer-focused person, they're a mess. And so um, I went to um, Dig Food Group and work with them. And you know, we have a bunch of iterations out in the marketplace. And at first, I was like, this is painful to me to see some flags that say Dig In. 
the old name, some flags that say dig, new font, period, some that say dig, no period, um, some that are old colors, some that are black, some that are new font, and like it, it makes my heart race. But, um, but what I have learned over time is to like loosen up um, because in fact, at the core of DIG are a couple of principles which are about supply and training and the food and the experience that you get. And that actually um, over, overreaches brand and these, this obsessive attention to color and font. And I think makes it, um, I like to think about uh, DIG as like bamboo. Like it's really flexible and the brand it's flexible because of the pillars. Like you have, I mean, there's a bunch of pillars that make it so that we can do almost anything and we don't have to be um, tied. But you always know when you're in a dig or a dig in store, right? <laughs> but, um, I'm not allowed to call it dig in anymore. You're not. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't know that. Uh, but you always no know when you're in one of those spots, which is remarkable, even if there's a lot of differences between it. So there must be core, core elements of those restaurants that we're recognizing. That's right, because we're rec recognizing the, the food experience, the food, the experience, and the, the quality, but there were old versions, you know, that still had wood. We don't do any, I mean, of a particular type. We don't do that anymore. And I was just fascinated that the brand, the promise was so strong. So working on the promise is incredibly important. Well, and now you have 232. We have 232 Bleecker. Which is, go doesn't even have the name. No, so 232 Bleecker is a restaurant on Bleecker Street with Suzanne Cups as the chef. And so instead of being like a farm fast concept, it's a beautiful sit-down restaurant. Um, again, we have the liberty to do it because of the pillars. Um, and it doesn't have anything to do with the visual brand identity. is completely different. But I think one needs the flexibility because I had... Um, I used to have a staff, <laughs> and they would say, why don't you do one black and white picture and one color picture? And then why don't you do all blues and all pinks? And, and I mean, literally, I was shriveled down to the tiniest thing because I couldn't fit the content that I wanted to share within that. So color, those are all great ideas. Color, um, tone, if it's National Pizza Day or whatever, but you, you've got to take those into consideration, but you also have to listen to if you can, what your message is. Because that's what it comes down to. Right, well that's, I mean, what it is, and then that is translating into voice. Right. I mean, that's why it's so hard, right? Because you're trying to translate something that is a feeling into a color and a font, and then from the feeling to the color of the font, and then to like something that everybody can share, and that becomes a community that links you, because at the end of the day, um, the reason people are going to be talking about you behind your back is because the brand has meaning in a community. So can we talk about the notion of community and how you build community um, online and offline? I can go. Champagne. <laughs> <laughs> community, I would say, is like the most important foundation of everything that we do at the Riddler. And it's been really interesting to see, you know, we opened our first location in San Francisco, and now we have one here in New York. Um, and I've been blown away by how many guests we've received um, at the New York location who are visiting from San Francisco and just like want to come see what it's like in New York which blows my mind that like, if you're on vacation for three days from San Francisco, you're gonna go to the same place you can get back home, but there's, there's something to that. But it's also totally different here. It is, it is quite different. I think 
when I think about brand, I also think about like how do you how do you make it site specific or community specific? And for us, we've got key touch points that are consistent across the brand. You know, a lot of black lacquer, a lot of white marble, a lot of brass, a lot of vintage pieces, obviously a big champagne list, but then we also have a huge community. And the best way that we interact with our community is we have this club called the 100 Club, which um, if you join the 100 Club, we'll track all the champagnes that you drink, and if you get to 100 bottles, you get a bomber jacket with your name embroidered in gold. So, and it's, it's basically our loyalty program without telling people that it's a loyalty program. Um, and people love it. And you get a VIP note in Resi. So even if you're at two bottles on your 100 Club journey, you get priority seating. We take extra good care of you. We just know that you want to come back, basically. And obviously, we want as many people to come back as possibly can. And then for the people who do get to the 100, it's like a major celebration. <laughs> it's a really big deal. So. That's one key way that we work with our community. Um, we also use our Resi platform really in a really robust way with all kinds of guest codes and notes. Um, almost everybody on our team came from fine dining, so we're all really used to this idea of um, putting in all of our VIPs into the system and making sure that we know when they're coming to visit us and that we take care of them, but then also any new guests who come who have a keen interest in what we're doing, we make sure that we like, take as many notes about them as we possibly can, and we share that database between San Francisco and New York. Um, and you know, press is a part of our community. It's a really important way for us to reach as many people as we possibly can, whether it's in the cities that we're operating in or in lots of cities beyond. Um, and the most important community we have are, is you know, our talent, everybody who works on the two teams. Um, and we really believe in promoting from within. So we have a woman who just got promoted to director of operations of both locations. She started as a sommelier on our team and then head SOM and then AGM and then GM and now she's running both locations. So, you know, your community is first and foremost, or your, your team is first and foremost like the, the greatest community that you have because those are the people who are running the business day to day. I'm curious, Eric, we, you were talking about the communities that you're in and how you were part of the fabric and what happens when you move outside of those communities. Like, can you tell us about the evolution? Like, you are in places that other people wouldn't open. Yeah, so um, <clears throat> I moved to D.C. 2007 in uh, H3 Corridor. H3 Corridor was running from 4th Street Northeast to 14th Street Northeast. And uh, used to be, if you've been, it basically was the Georgetown of Washington, D.C. in the 60s. And it all burned down in 1968 during the Martin Luther King riot. The city cut off the bridge and it kind of became an isolated neighborhood. Uh, I have three businesses in that neighborhood and have lived there for the last 13 years. Um, and Maketo, which was our most ambitious project, was this mixed concept space, uh, retail, cafe, restaurant, um, inspired by Taiwanese Cambodian night markets, but also high-end men's fashion. Um, our theory was, our thinking was, uh, during the 60s, if you were going to go buy your prom dress, you were going to get a haircut, you were going to get your first suit, you were going to go out on a dinner date, you would have gone to H Street, and it was this place that was just beautiful and vibrant, and we wanted to create something that would connect to the history, and then we would put this really fancy retail store in the front. And it's one of those things when you talk about verbally, sounds really confusing, it was really hard to sell, it was really hard to get investors for, and it was very important for us to create this digital brand and life 
um, that was that now when you see the pictures, it's like, oh, this makes sense, and this happens. We opened about six years ago, and now you see multiple places start doing it. You got Kith and Treats, you got bars in Bloomingdale's, and you have Urban Outfitters buying pizza concepts. But we were definitely the first six years ago to really do it at a level where you would get a James Beer nomination or a Michelin. Um, you would also be recognized on Hypebeast or any of these fashion blogs. Um, but our digital store experience is very different than our in-shop experience. If you're looking at online, you're going to see a $600 pair of Y3s, a $900 pair of Hender schemes next to our own wine uh, that we've made with our own label, our own beer, and it's just very clean and modern and what people want from when they're scrolling through their Instagram. But then you come to the store on a Sunday, it might be pumpkin carving day and 50 strollers and hundreds of kids running around carving pumpkins and you might be the, uh, you know, the internet head who came down from New York and heard about this store and you're just like, this is not what I saw. <laughs> you know, and for us, we might just buy one pair of those shoes because there'll be some brand, maybe like Bento Box or BMW or Audi who are looking to, to do an experience. American Express is a great partner where they're looking to give their cardholders a new experience in an urban setting of something they've never seen. And we maintain that image on the internet for that specific reason. And then we make sure that the restaurant itself is whatever it needs to be for the people that are coming to it and it will evolve to adapt to that. Um, we have a minute left. And so I just wanna do a speed round of what you've seen people do really wrong in the world of brand. Like, where have people crashed and burned? Um, not going that speedy. <laughs> I'm going to go back to the original thing that I said around uh, is trying to channel absolutely everything into one place and so you don't get anything um, out of it really and I think one good example of this and I'm just going to go back to, to websites is um, is when you tried to do like music and video and and like wanted to you know conjure up like everything about the entire restaurant in this one web page and it's just like you almost ended up like turning people away and so when I think about all the different channels again um, trying to just be very uh, deliberate and and um, considerate about everything that happens and not feeling like um, brand has to just be like this vomit of everything. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I think the biggest mistake is just not investing in brand at all. So not having a clear vision and then not getting a cool graphic designer, not putting anything on Instagram, having ugly menus, <laughs> having an ugly space. Like you see a lot of really talented people who create restaurants that are not particularly remarkable because of that. And it does cost money to invest in these things up front, but I think it's worth every penny. Um, not understanding the, t the trade, so um, not being classically trained, not taking a minute to understand actually what you're doing and spending the time. So the f word photography, you know, photographers banded around everywhere. Everyone's a photographer now, but are they really? <laughs> um. I think uh, just be as honest and upfront as possible and just set your boundaries early. If you don't do that, you're just kind of running around with the chicken with your head cut off. Okay, with that, branding. Thank you guys. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dana.
This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. A cherry isn't just a cherry. When it comes to tart cherries, the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry variety is the cherry with more. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries are also one of America's superfruit, which means they're good for you. Tart cherries contain many antioxidants and beneficial phytonutrients, including anthocyanins, the pigments that give tart cherries their beautiful red color. And don't forget about flavor. U.S. Montmorency's unique sour-sweet profile makes them an excellent addition to yogurt, oatmeal, salads, trail mix, and of course, a classic cherry pie. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency Tart Cherry at ChooseCherries.com. So good afternoon, everybody. My name is Salvatore Rizzo. I am the moderator for this part of the discussion, we're going to be talking about industry news, the state of hospitality business. Before we begin, I would like to have our panel introduce themselves. Hi, everyone. I'm Rita Jamais. Uh, first, I wanted to thank uh, and congratulate Sherry on an excellent job. This is such a big undertaking. Brava. Brava. I'm thrilled to be here. So my name is Rita Jamé, and I'm a, the chief bubble officer of La Caravelle Champagne and Wines. Nothing like a self-appointed C-suite title. <laughs> um, I'm also a former restaurateur. My husband, Andre, and I used to own La Caravelle Restaurant, and I'm thrilled to be here. Aaron. Uh, thank you for having me also. My name is Aaron Arispe. Um I have a restaurant consultancy or hospitality consultancy called Pocket Fork LLC. Um, but I, I'm not neatly categorized. I do some writing, I do some photography, I do some events, and kind of think of those as more manifestations of what I do rather than what I actually do, uh, which I like to characterize as a, a restaurant conservationist. I, I want to understand the past of restaurants, explore the present of restaurants, and shape the future of restaurants, and that kind of defines all of the projects that I get involved with uh, professionally. Hi, my name is Lori Balcher, and I have a restaurant supply company down on the Bowery for 90 years, same place, and uh, <laughs> we sell restaurant supplies to the tri-state area and beyond, and um, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. Hi, my name is uh, Mark Rosati. I'm the culinary director of Shake Shack. I've been with the company for uh, about 13 years now, and I watch us go from one location in Madison Park up to about uh, 280 worldwide now. Amazing. I feel like, I, I was telling before, I was like, I feel like Andy Cohen without the housewives right now. <laughs> I have to say. Or we need the bartender just to bring up some drinks. So I want to start by saying, like, we're going to talk about hospitality trends. So first off, dry January. Do you follow it? Does everybody follow dry January? Absolutely not. <laughs> not, a, not a chance. Nope. Sorry. Uh, a little bit. Now, a little why bit. do you, why, tell me why a little bit. Well, with me, I travel a lot for work, and uh, coming, on, uh, coming into November, um, I had a, a good deal of travel, and when I travel, a part of that is eating and understanding like, the different cities we're opening in. So I went from that into Thanksgiving, and then I went on another trip into the holidays, New Year's Eve, and I feel like I haven't stopped eating for the past <laughs> three months. So normally I wouldn't, but right now I'm kind of doing a, a dry January. Is it difficult? 
It is, it is, because I love everything I shouldn't love. I love sugar, I love alcohol, I love salt, so trying to cut that out of my system has been really hard. Okay. But after, after like five or six days, it actually gets easier, but those first couple days, I was just hating life. Anybody out here doing Dry January? I'm just curious. Nobody, thank God. It's a great crowd, <laughs> you love it. <laughs> thank God, ugh. Anyway, so let's talk about low proof and zero proof. So when you talk about zero proof, zero proof in your restaurants, zero proof in all low proof and actually keeping the carbon footprint. Are uh, you guys, I mean, nobody has a restaurant, but are you doing it at home? Do you believe in it? I mean, Laurie, with your, with your business, are you doing more sustainable products like in paperware and stuff like that? Yeah, we've definitely seen a big trend towards uh, sustainable and we try to uh, bring it in as much as we can. Um, a lot of the hotels are going that way, and you know we try to source some new products to keep up with the trends. So I think it's you know it's it's big and it's real important, and we want to stay on top of it. And Rita, with the champagne, is there anything? I mean, like when you talk about corks, for example, would you never? I mean, think of you know do plastic corks. Corks is very sustainable. What about going into not bottles but other products, uh, like doing? Boxes I mean, and so it can so be forth. done on wine, but champagne, there's no way it can be done any other way uh, because of the extreme pressure of, of the champagne, the bubbles in there, um, and the cork. You have to have these things really well sealed also, and thick bottles. Sorry, not very environmental. However... But in, it tastes so damn good, though. <laughs> uh, from from your, your mouth to everybody's glass. <laughs> so um, there's, uh, in, the, in the wine growing and winemaking, there's definitely an effort being made. Uh, going to, it's called viticulture raisonnée, reasoned viticulture, meaning more and more sustainable practices are being adopted. So that's really a step in the right direction. And just not to put you on the spot, but didn't you get a very big nomination last year? Oh yes, I was. Uh, I received the wonderful distinction from the French uh, government of uh, officier de, de la de la ordre agricole du mérite agricole. Here I'm stuttering about my own title. <laughs> <laughs> Too dry now. No. Uh, so yeah, this is a agriculture merit. It's for the French government recognizing the efforts that I've, I've made and I'm still making every day to promote French culture, everything related to agriculture. Obviously, on the restaurant and beverage side. Can we just give her a round of applause? Because that's really... Now, thank you, Aaron, before I go into the next question, I was telling before, like we were in the green room, I've, I've read about him, I knew about him, I never met him, and then I was like, you're like an octopus. You have your hands in everything. Thank you, Tell I us think. a little bit, like, like, what do you do? And, and like, I mean, really, I mean, you, you do a lot. Um, well, in the, in the past, I've done a lot of uh, event coordination. Um, I think I was the curator behind Chef's Club for about five, four, almost five years, uh, through which we cycled about uh, 200 chefs over, over those years. Uh, My competition, you know, residencies. you know that. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> Just saying. But a lot of, uh, the, you can do both. They, they could always do both. And in fact, the and Matt, I, <laughs> I, I know they did at, at some point. Um, all along the way, trying to uh, tell the stories of those chefs and share the stories of those chefs in different ways. Sometimes that could be through freelance writing, sometimes it could be through different uh, photography uh, initiatives, digital marketing, and so on. Um, and, and now, I mean, I, I'm doing the content for a, a concierge service based here and in London as well. Um, do a newsletter for them and sort of share a lot actually about industry trends uh, through that medium. And um, 
Yeah, I mean, that's... You do a lot. I May I add, Aaron's an extraordinary storyteller, and that's the part I love best. He's very talented, I but this particular... Are you for hire? I like, I like <laughs> sitting next to Rita because she, she really does a good job of uh, explaining the octopus. <laughs> <laughs> so going into, I mean, we're talking about, I know we were talking about earlier about social and, and promoting yourselves. You're very big on that. How do you guys do it? I mean, Mark, Lori, how do you guys, like, how do you guys promote you, your businesses yourselves? Well, I'm really bad at it, okay? Mine, strictly for me, is word of mouth and repeat business. Um, I now have hired, you know, this new younger generation is very much into social media, and I kind of let them roll with it because it's, it's just not my thing. But, you know, I'm learning by letting them tell me things to do and bring things in and, you know, the Instagram and Twitter and, oh, God, I don't even know how to get online anymore. So it's TikTok. <laughs> All the kids are doing it. <laughs> yes, my children won't do it for me anymore because they think I'm an idiot. But, um, you know, I'm still very much old school. You know, I like talking to people on the phone. I, uh, we have a showroom, which I think is um, probably one of the oldest showrooms on the Bowery and, you know, cleanest. So we get a lot of chefs <laughs> and restaurateurs that come in. And I'm more face-to-face. -face. That's, you know, I, I prefer that and picking up a telephone. May I ask you, people appreciate that? I mean... People appreciate having that one-on-one -on -one phone call. I think so. I think it's important. You know, I think you lose a lot of, uh, a lot of things when you're texting, you know, and for years when, if, you know, when texting first started, I didn't know caps was a thing. So people would call me and say, why are you so angry? And I was like, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so it took me a long time, you know, and everyone's abbreviates and I have to look it up. By the time I'm done, just pick up a phone. It's so much easier. Mark, I want to talk about yep. right now Fast Casual and all of yes. you about Fast Casual. You guys are really just ruling the world on Fast Casual. <laughs> Tell us about it. Tell us about that, like what the trend, and even for all of you, like what do you think about, I mean, would you guys ever consider doing a more regular, not Fast Casual and doing like an all restaurant? That's a very interesting idea, and we're actually seeing a few uh, fast casual, fine casual start to kind of go that route and actually open brick-and-mortar restaurants, almost like an extension of their ethos of where they get their ingredients and just plating it and bring it together in a very different format. Um, for us, we just want to keep doing uh, what we've been doing in terms of creating community gathering places as we keep growing. When we opened the first location in Madison Park, the vision was create something that can bring people together, something that has a good... Uh, cost of entry point um, that's fun and just lets people come together and relax. And uh, we never intended to open any more Shake Shacks. That was the first one. We put a lot of time and energy into making that one a great experience. And then we got to the point that we realized the original location that we opened was in a park. And we always thought the magic was the park. Mm -hmm. And we finally had this epiphany. Well, what if it isn't the park? What if the food actually is, could stand on its own in a different location? So we opened a second location. And uh, the same magic that happened in the park happened in the Upper West Side of New York, which is a different community. Um, and we also took the time to really dial that location's menu into that neighborhood, work with local uh, purveyors, and also take some of our food, a few menu items, take a percentage of those sales, and donate them to the Museum of Natural History That's across great. the street. And again, we just wanted to do something great for that neighborhood. Um, but then we kept thinking about it, and we said, well, maybe burgers can go out past New York City. And that's when we started to get the idea of slowly maybe expanding. And uh, as we keep going, um, it's very exciting for me because I, I 
was a, a big foodie. I still am a big foodie. I love to go and uh, get tasting menus and see like fine dining and that level of cooking and what it can mean. Um, but at the end of the day, I do love a good burger. Uh, I do love a good simple roasted pork chop and stuff like that is always going to be the food that I crave. Um, and I think if you can now offer that food um, and make it accessible, but make it better quality, a little more exciting. And what I love about it is a lot more restaurants are opening up the fine casual segment. They're bringing their own personality. They're bringing different cuisine. It gets me excited because, again, I can get great food. It's a lot easier to get in, a lot easier to get out, and a lot easier on my wallet. And Reed, I was going to ask you about... Yes, as the, the mother of uh, Nicolas Jamais, who's the co-founder of Sweet Green, I'm also chief mom officer. <laughs> no, um, it, I witnessed, um, coming from the fine dining background, I witnessed uh, with awe how taking the best part, I mean, most of the parts of a restaurant experience, but translating them into today's world, how a lot of people want to eat, um, the type of food, the, the convenience of it, but not losing that quality. Uh, also the local ingredients and all that, and then you get you get a you know success. It was also was born out of a need. Uh, three students were frustrated of not having enough healthy but taste good tasting, uh, delicious food. So they said it was either healthy and kind of boring, bad, mm. or it was delicious and super rich. So why can't we have both? So that's what they set out to do, and it really was born out of a need. And I'm, I'm marveling at this. Having said th that, I love going to fine dining restaurants too. <laughs> and all restaurants in general. Absolutely. Aaron, what do you think about fast? I mean, like, what's your take on that? I mean, m my take on it is there are uh, experientially, along the experiential spectrum, there is a place I'm going to be in for 30 seconds, and it's, uh, it's my concern there is efficiency. There's a place I'm going to be for three hours, and my concern there is, is fullness of experience, immersive experience. And I think that, that as long as the person who is orchestrating this experience is being true to themselves and presenting something that's authentic, not in terms of cuisine or in terms of concept or in terms of saying what is lacking in the market, but they're being the best at being themselves, those are the places that I want to go. So I think, I think Mark, Mark touched on this also, it, this notion of uh, people injecting their, per, their personality into, um, in that case, fast casual uh, projects. But I think that that applies to the entire spectrum, where if you are, if you're having uh, Casa de Sal, no one's going to make that restaurant better than you because you are the best at being you. And I, I think that my enjoyment as a consumer of restaurants in all of those different settings mm. um, is all tied to the, to touch on actually what uh, Jimmy said earlier about uh, intentionality. And, and clarity of, uh, of vision. Laurie, talk about, we're going to talk about right now the to, uh, with ghost kitchens and now these new food halls coming up. Do you see a lot of business coming out of your way? Um, the ghost kitchens uh, a little bit, but um, the food halls are, you know, I think it's a really interesting concept. Um, I, I like the fact that you can bring a lot of diversity into one place and have your choice of eating. You know, I think it's got pros and cons, like with everything. I think you, you, you lose the experience of eating out, you know, and, and for me, like, I like eating out. I like sitting at a, you know, a communal table. I like talking to people. I like having that experience of, like, what'd you have? You know, is it good? And, you know, meeting people. 
you know, for me, this business is very social, and I think sometimes with the food halls, it's kind of like you're grabbing and going, and I think it loses a little bit of, you know, the experience of eating out. Do you, I mean, I'm going to ask you all, do you think that food halls are up the rise or going down? It's an interesting question, yeah. Um, I, I live, I live uh, very close to a food hall in uh, Brooklyn, and uh, I eat there probably once a week, if not a little bit more, because it, there is great diversity in all the different vendors that are there. The food is cooked at a high level, but I bring it back to my apartment and eat it. And I think the point about like losing out on a little bit of the experience, I think that's where my, little, my disconnect is with that a little bit. And again, I love them for certain things. Again, if I want the convenience, I want a lot of great options. If uh, I want one thing my wife wants and another, you know, we're happy to go to the food hall and find something that makes us both happy. But again, I think the experience is where I miss sometimes on those. Aaron? I, I, I agree. I, I think that if you look at, uh, look at Starbucks, for instance, and what it, what it, um, the need that it satisfies culturally for America is, a, is a, a, an important third space. So it's not your work, it's not your home, oh. it's another place that you gather. And I think that food halls um, satisfy that to a lesser degree than traditional restaurants. Rita. I live in Harlem and I wish somebody would open a food hall in Harlem. <laughs> <laughs> Any investors? <laughs> So we're going to talk about a little hot topic now, and we're going to talk about proposed tariffs. I know, and it just, it angers me. I guess it's going to anger everybody else, but tell us about your thoughts on that. Well, um, we're in a much better space now than we were 10 days ago, uh, where this 100% proposal of 100% tariffs on a multitude of, of products coming from Europe from in my in my own world it's champagne would have been devastating and everybody was scrambling to find what to do what to do some people ordered enough sh uh, champagne to last them a year here which i didn't think was such a you know practicable solution and then Your account i must be happy <laughs> <laughs> and and when people ask me what are you going to do what are you going to do i said what can i do uh, this is this is kind of a um, life threatening and career threatening like Maybe I should switch professions and do something else that doesn't involve importing goods from Europe. Then I, you know, I have a positive, always a positive outlook. Is hopefully somebody will come to their senses because it's so huge that it just won't uh, happen. So, and in fact, it got delayed a year because they decided to table. Um, the two presidents decided to table Macron and, and Trump decided to table this until the end of the year. Um, there's another uh, tariff, the 25% on selected uh, number of wines and foods from Europe. And uh, the, let's say in the wine category, if your wine is um, over uh, below 14 alcohol uh, in certain formats, etc., there has been an imposition of 25%. That has gone into effect. Really? It has in October. And um, in the industry, not many people have reflected that price increase, waiting to see what was going to happen. But it's, um, it's very hard because um, how can you repercute that right away on your prices? Sure. It's going to have you know, the domino effect. And these tariffs are potentially damaging not only for the, the manufacturer, I mean the producers, mm -hmm. also a host of whole industry levels. The, the importers, the distributors, the, the shops, the restaurants, Everybody. the guests at the end of the day. And what people don't think about is that if these tariffs are in, in effect happening, then they're going to be counter, you know, 
measures. So American wineries are going to suffer as well. So this is really a big, big no-no for me, and hopefully it won't get um, implemented and we'll find ways to make it work. Here, here. Is there anything we could do about it? Pardon me? Is there anything we could do about it? I mean, write to your congressman and... Absolutely, absolutely. Make your voice heard. This is a democracy. That's how things work. Make, uh, you know, make your voice heard. There are a lot of movements online. There was a change.org uh, petition on Facebook, which I think was very effective where everybody, I, I mean, personally, I wrote to my friends and family, please, it will take you two minutes. Just go online and make your voice heard. Have you guys any thoughts on that? With the tariffs, I mean, would it affect? I mean, it's not going to affect any of you personally, but when you come down to going to a restaurant, I mean, seeing that increase. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think with the restaurant business uh, is very difficult as it is. So now with tariffs, it's just making it harder because now you're limited. You may be limited to what you're going to drink mm. and possibly eat. It's the prices are going to go up, and you know. It, it's hard enough to keep people in a restaurant and now you're limiting what they can have. So I think it has a very, very big impact on, on all the restaurants. Do you guys want to share on something like I 100% agree. I feel like, um, you know, costs are going up, labor's going up. Um, and now if what you can actually offer, you have to kind of uh, pare it down and the experience changes and narrows instead of widening, I think that can hurt a restaurant for sure. You know, it's funny because I was just, the other night I went out to eat and looking at that wine list, and it was just a very casual dinner, but not seeing anything under $75 immediately upset me. Like, it just ruined my dinner from the minute I sat down because I just didn't, I didn't want to spend $75 on a bottle of wine. I wanted to spend $50 on a bottle of wine, but I was forced to do that. And if these tariffs go in, it's going to be like, you know, it's going to affect everybody. So, yeah. Let's sign up, people. Sign up and fight. <laughs> Uh, tipping in wages, what do you think about what's going on with that, with um, the tipping and uh, just increasing wages, Aaron? I mean, I, I think that um, it's, it's, a, it's a very layered issue. There's not a, a right way or a wrong way to approach it necessarily. I, I think a lot of people that have a tendency to uh, explore other markets, let's say, frequent travelers to Europe or Asia or whatever where you've encountered what comes along with uh, a service included mentality and we've already seen what happens when uh, USHG has, has tried to implement that and in some cases had sort of mixed success. Um, I, I think it's just it's an important conversation to have. I, I'm not particularly uh, entrenched in one mm. camp or the other about whether it's uh, a good or bad thing. I, I was a server for many years, and certainly I benefited uh, substantially from the fact that it was uh, that we were receiving tips. Um, and and I, I think the the thing that that feels most important about that topic, from my point of view, is being able to empathize with people in different settings. And I think that that relates to the to the tariff also, and the. the the, th the conversations that were sparked by the outrage about that, mm -hmm. it sort of gave us all kind of a, a common enemy. And so it was actually sort of a catalyst for, for unity in a way, because it was like everybody was speaking up at the same time and saying, That's such a great point. This, this is going to affect me in this particular way. And then another person says, oh, well, I, I didn't even think about that, because that same topic affects me in a totally different manner. But if we can have a conversation, a dialogue about how, the, how those ways are different, then it gets us to a better place, no matter what. And just 
on all of you, I mean, think about with, with the wage increase, do you, do you feel like you're getting better employees or are they more demanding employees? Because they know they could get more if they wanted to because the, the, the labor is so short. I mean, I mean, I mean, there's two sides. Uh, on the worker's side, $15 an hour, how can you feed a whole family and live with that, depending on Completely. how many, etc. On the other hand, on the operator's side, the restaurateur's side, there's a structure and, and proportion in the numbers which are already under attack with the rent and the cost of goods and everything. When you add those increases, the numbers start to hurt and that, that's problematic, you know. And as far as the service, hospitality included, things would be so much uh, fairer if it was mandated by law. You have no choice, everybody's on the same playing level field, and that's it, you know. Well, I was gonna say, Mark, do you, how, do you, how do you get your employees? I mean, you guys have, I can't imagine how many employees you have, but mm -hmm. what do you seek out for? I mean, are they coming to you? Are they coming from culinary school or just kids from high school? They're literally coming from everywhere, and um, if a person does have a culinary school experience or restaurant experience, that's great, we love that. Um, but it's a very different model, our kitchen, and we've, we've designed it in a way now where if you've never stepped foot in a kitchen, that's fine. We can train you how to make a shake. We can show you how to make a burger. It's pretty easy. So we put a, a big premium on finding people that have a, a natural warmth to them, uh, curious intelligence. So we always say we want the type of person that can walk through the room and see like a dirty napkin. They're compelled to stop and pick it up and throw it away. That's one thing we cannot teach. So that's something we've always put a premium on. And for us, I mean, um, we, we've always paid a little more than like what the states uh, mandate. And uh, for us, doing that, um, we are looking for amazing people. We, we've been finding them. Um, and our price point is a lower price point. Um, the challenge for us is trying to figure out ways of working with our, uh, our kind of management structure, our team structure, and finding ways where we can raise the price for everyone, but at the same time run a healthy business. Can I just say, I mean, it's funny that you met, were just talking about um, the younger workforce. At the school once, we had Mark Ladner do a class when he was at Pasta Flyer. And at the school, we always asked for recipes. So when I asked for his recipe, he gave me emojis. And I said, what is this? And he's like, I have to teach these young kids. They don't understand how to make my sauce, so I have to make pictures for them to understand. And I thought it was brilliant. But that's, that was the mentality he had to go with because he just wanted to make sure that it was adaptable for them. Any thoughts on what we're just talking about? You know, it's funny, um, Mark, so I'm embarrassed to say that last week was the first time that I ate at a, shack, a Shake Shack. Sacre bleu. And, and it, was, it was in Madison Square Park and it was after a very big hangover for a January Christmas party. So. <laughs> Great time I, to always go. Yeah, See, great. just like Andy Cohen, it's all coming Right, out. exactly. <laughs> and I have to tell you that I was so impressed with the whole process from standing online to the young lady who looked at me and knew I was lost and handed me a menu to waiting for the burger and people actually talking to me and saying, I'm really sorry, but it's coming up in two minutes. And your staff was incredible. I was very, very impressed. That's wonderful to hear. And I mean, then again, that's it for us. If we're going to pay more, we do expect more from that person. And I think because they don't have to have that culinary background, it does open up the people that we can uh, interview and find. And again, we found some amazing people that have never set foot in a restaurant, and they've grown into general managers. And that's uh, what we look for. So again, we're hiring everyone, hoping that that person has what it takes to keep growing as we keep growing. That's great. 
Aaron, when you got, uh, didn't you open up Chef Counter, or were you part of that opening team? I was part of the opening can team. You, if yeah. everybody doesn't know, can you just? Uh, so it, it was a uh, is a very large, four thousand square foot, uh, <laughs> fast casual space on the corner of uh, Spring and Lafayette, and it's basically a, a, a bigger a bigger sort of square shaped space, and then a, a narrower space that used to be very expensive uh, coat storage, and uh, we sort of. We're thinking about ways that we could better utilize that space and so set up basically rotating um, what started out as pop-ups but ended up being longer-term residencies through both of those spaces. Um, they were all very experiential in nature. So the first one was uh, with, with Oddfellows ice cream and we created kind of a, uh, a carnival scene where you stepped inside <laughs> and it's like uh, the, the monkeys with the symbols were doing this. and. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, every, everything was very sort of like uh, Willy Wonka, very playful uh, and also very immersive. And, and uh, the part that, was, was, uh, that I was most proud of about that was, yes, it lived on on Instagram and all of that stuff, but if you put down your phone and just lean into it, it was very fun as a, as, as a, as a human experience, you know. So I want to go into PR and I know people who start restaurants, and we were talking about it earlier, how, what an expense it is. What is your feelings on PR? I mean, Rita, I want to talk about, especially we'll start with you with La Caravelle and years ago. Did you have a PR to see? Did you, you and Andre decide about it? Tell us how that process went, and then going down, because it's, it's important to hear from four different aspects of companies. Um, we did have PR. Um, we worked with several companies throughout the years. Um, the only thing we did not have to open a restaurant, La Caravelle was open already, although we had opened uh, Sono, which was a French-Japanese restaurant. Um, I think for me the key thing, in addition to um, getting the word out that you're here and you're serving great food and a great atmosphere with great um, team and hospitality, is also how you position the restaurant at the beginning. And I feel like if you don't position your restaurant or your business properly, to attract the right kind of customers that you designed your restaurant for, you're doomed to, to failure. So that's really crucial in, in my point. Did you, did you sit down with your agent and say, this is what we want and this is how you want to project it? And they had their responsibility to do that? Well, it was, a, it was a two way conversation. Yes, this is what we want. We want people to discover us or rediscover, mm -hmm. which is trickier than to discover mm. in a city that who's, uh, has the word new in its name, New York. <laughs> um, on the other hand, um, I want to see what the publicist can bring to the equation, how well they understand us, how well they understand our concept, what we're trying to do, what we would like to do, what we do not want to do. Mm. Um, in my opinion, the best, the, where we had the best uh, results is when the publicist, you know, some publicists just blanket the town with, with press releases and that, that's just not, see what sticks. Yeah. Um, I'm completely against that. It's yeah. more targeted, even if you have less, less um, uh, stories coming out, but powerful ones that are just putting the limelight on you and what you're doing. Um, for me, that was the most important thing, yeah. Aaron, what did you guys do at, at Chef's Club? Uh, is Funny you ask, because at, at Chef's Club, I sort of, um, I occupied a little bit of both camps. I was both being, <laughs> I, was, I was receiving pitches as a writer, and then was also sort of uh, helping our PR agency frame them. And at first we had uh, outside PR, 
from a couple of different firms. Um, then we had in-house and I felt like the only reason that was a success is because this was in the third year of operation and we knew who we were at that point. I think the first few years it was very hard to have any agency um, understand what we were doing because no. we didn't understand what we were doing necessarily. And I think once you have that clarity and you can, you can uh, clearly communicate that to someone else, that's when the that's when the the good PR is possible. It's it's not the it's not only on the shoulders of the publicist or of the agency. It's also on the shoulders of the person to completely to make sense of what's in their head and, and share that with other people. Absolutely, and, and I think it's a two way street, Definitely. too, because I know when I had you know with my publicist, I made a point to talk to them once a week, if not twice, just to hear what they were doing and having this conversation, but. You know, having your voice, I think sometimes too, is like when I took over the school, they wanted me to be this. And I said, no, that's not me. This is me, right? Lori, so with having your business, with your family business, did you guys ever do PR or you didn't need to? Uh, I don't think we did traditional PR. Um, we have now hired someone that is... You did? We did, we did. And, um, your first Shake Shack, your first PR. <laughs> you know, we're so a day of first. Isn't it? <laughs> right. You know, we're so learning the importance of having your name out there, even though we are an established company. But um, just reaching out to all the 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 different medias, I think you know, it's it's been a challenge for us because it's not something we've been really comfortable doing or that we've been exposed to. But um, it's been interesting. You know, I did a podcast with Shari, thank you very much, which was amazing and doing this event. So, you know, we're, we wanted to go on to the next generation. So I think it's really important that you have PR and you, you know, you're exposed. What was that pinnacle? Like, when did you decide to do that? When I hired my PR man, <laughs> he said, you're doing it. And I said, okay. <laughs> so you knew, I mean, like you knew they had to, you had to do a broader outreach. Yeah, it was time. You know, you, you know, it's great having a showroom and it's great being known in New York, but there's, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's still a lot of competition out there and you got to be fresh and, you know, you can't let people forget who you are. So it's real important. Mark, what do you guys do? I mean, you're so we, big. Do you still do PR? Do you we still do. We do. do. And uh, I mean, PR marketing has been a, a big part of us uh, from the early days. When we started to grow the company uh, and we started our corporate office, the third hire was a marketing person behind our operations and culinary teams. And uh, for us, it's become even more important as we continue to grow because we're pretty well known on the East Coast. But then as we go on into the West Coast, into California and other cities, um, people really don't know who we are. And sometimes our burgers might be less expensive and they might consider it to be fast food or they might be too expensive to some. So it's really good to have that team to tell the story of who we are in an interactive, engaging way. Um, and as we've gone international, it's the same thing for people that probably don't know anything about us. And um, to touch down in a city and let them try the burger um, and get excited about it, we first have to get them in the door. Mm. And again, that's where the team comes in to, to engage with people and, and say, this is who we are, this is our roots, um, this is what we think makes us different. And we find that's been so, uh, so important to our business as we can continue, uh, sorry, continue to grow. And even when we think we've told the story in certain cities and people know who we are, there's always new uh, topics that come up. Um, there's parts of our business that are always changing and evolving. So we just like to let our guests um, 
know what we've been up to, and we think it's just so important to keep that dialogue open. Now, is that because you opened up the Innovation Kitchen? Yes, to some extent. Um, we recently opened up an uh, Innovation Kitchen in one of our locations in the West Has Village. Has anybody been to the Innovation Kitchen? You have. And that's one of the things, because we were born out of a fine dining restaurant group, and when people ask us what makes us different, and we say, well, that's, that's our, our thought process. And while uh, myself and the culinary team, all we do is think about the food, there are other people on the team that think about what it sounds like, uh, what it feels like, what it looks like when you walk in the door. And all those elements are very important to come together to make a great experience. And um, the Innovation Kitchen is kind of an extension of that. We've never actually had a, a, a kitchen to create our food out of. Um, we never had a place actually where we could have an office big enough to support our team, have a restaurant, and then have a kitchen where we could create food. And like, it's, it's like a beautiful cycle where we can get excited about an idea, call upstairs, they come running down, they get to try, and they feel that excitement <laughs> in the moment. We've just never had that until last year, actually. So uh, we've taken a step further in the spirit of innovation. Um, the menu changes monthly. There's usually a different sandwich, uh, different beverage, different uh, custard item. And we're taking it to the next level now where this year we're actually going to change the interior of the restaurant and play around with the design and maybe in the kitchen too because we've learned a lot over one year. So now we kind of want to wipe the slate clean and put in some new ideas and test those out because, again, we're, we're still a pretty small company for who we are. And uh, we just know we have not learned and saw it all. So we want to keep, keep trying new ideas, throw them at the wall, see what sticks. So that's, that's kind awesome. of the spirit of that location. And And... Talking about that, you also do collaborations. I mean, you did, you do so with the champagne. Do you do any collaborations with chefs in your business? Uh, not really. I mean, we've, we did a showroom event. I mean, I think we're going to start doing more. We, uh, we'd like to get involved with doing some fun stuff, but it's hard, you know, we don't have the space and chefs are very, very busy. So, <laughs> Can the general public come to you? Um, no? Yes and no. I mean, we basically are wholesalers because um, we have one side of the showroom that's all sold by the case. And then the other side is you can buy by the piece, but you know, it's very hard to deal with consumers um, just because they, we're not set up to, you know, can't come in and buy a ladle. It's just takes too much time. So oh. we, we try to keep it more on the wholesale or if you're going to buy, you know, at least $100 worth of product. You have a photogenic memory? Yeah. Don't remember any these of you come here. <laughs> they come in. Or all of you come. <laughs> so I want to move into talking about restaurants, dining, we all love. What is your take on the 50 best? Hot new. 10 best. I'm going to go from here down. Mark. Um, Do you think it's important? Do you? I like the fact that there is some recognition for uh, some restaurants and Whichever one you really like, if you gravitate towards Michelin or 50 Best or opinion about dining, there's a lot of them. Um, I love the idea of recognition. I think in the spirit of it, too, if it pushes the chefs uh, to kind of keep furthering the dialogue of what that type of food can be, um, I love that. Something I thought I've heard recently is that 50 Best has now said if you're the number one spot, you can't be the number one spot again. And for me, I'm kind of no. conflicted about that. I think it's good to kind of share uh, the chance to get there because a lot of restaurants have occupied that for a while. But then on the other hand, I feel if you are just raising the game and pushing it and you still are doing it at a high, high level, I still think it's fair that you do get that recognition. Um, it's also a great uh, morale booster for the, for the team. It is, it is. And, um, but again, there's so many different ones coming out. Sometimes they're conflicting. Um, 
but I do, I do pay attention to them. I think they are important. Laura, do you follow that in your industry? Yeah. Uh, I love reading about all the, you know, the, the best restaurants, and I, and I think it's great because it's not just New York, so you can really, when you're traveling, I think it's amazing that you can pinpoint a restaurant that you, you know, have seen in, on a list. Um, I, I also feel that, you know, it has some drawbacks because, you know, there's so many restaurants out there, and I think the ones that are publicized in certain places, everyone's gravitating to, and there's so many great restaurants that you know, it kind of puts them on the back burner. So I think it's hard, you know? I mean, I, I do appreciate it though. Aaron, do you, go, do you follow that? Do you go out, do you specifically look at those lists and want to go dine at those restaurants? Definitely not, but... Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Tell us how you really feel. Uh, absolutely not, but uh, that said, a lot of the clients that I work with are very, very concerned with their placement on those types of lists because uh, it has a huge financial impact for their business yeah. and that it would be foolish to pretend that it's otherwise. Uh, so even if I disagree, for instance, with the existence of a Best Female Chef Award, what the hell does that mean? But, um, you know, the, the, the types, I feel like this, it's over compartmentalization a little bit. Well, I have to say, like, why does that have to be Best Female Chef? Why can't it just be Best Chef? Correct. Right? Yeah, it's like, why put I, a label I, on I it? think that um, what starts happening from the creative point of view is they start playing to the audience a little bit and compromising um, whatever you want to call it, their vision or their, their, their uh, authorship of, of their projects by saying, well, if I cook in this particular way, if we structure our service in this particular way, if we charge this particular mm -hmm. amount of money, we can get seen by uh, Michelin. We can, we can maybe make our way into 50 best and, and so on. And I think that that sort of dilutes the the specialness of, of what those projects could have been in the first place. Okay. Rita? Um, it's definitely part of the definition of a restaurant now. It's become part of the, it's an adjective. It's Michelin stars restaurant. It's part of the world, 50 best. Um, it's good to be recognized as, as Mark was saying. Um, and what people, the public might not always see is the huge efforts on all fronts that it takes to get some of these ratings. I mean, there is such pressure that some chefs committed suicide. I think of my friend Bernard Loiseau in France years ago. Um, yeah, he, he committed suicide out of fear of, of uh, losing uh, his third star, which he didn't uh, because it was so excellent. But it's, um, it's a stamp of quality, excellence, recognition. Uh, the reverse is if you lose one, it's like it hurts. It hurts a lot. But uh, yes, and also what was said before, I totally agree on two points. First, that the danger is that some restaurants start to change what they do and who they are to please the audience or or people who rate them. Um, and also, it's a great morale booster and encouraging encouragement for the team because everybody has a part in it. The restaurant is not just the chef; it's everybody in there, and that's really big for me. I agree. And what, what, what's your take on competitive TV? Competitive food shows? On the rise, on the low? Do you watch them, do you not? Is it like that like 10 years ago to now? Like, just thoughts. Well, I, I, watch, I, I watch some of the shows. Um, I was watching uh, Chef Table. I think it's really interesting to hear the stories. I think it gives you a better perspective of what these chefs have gone through and, and what they're bringing I, to the table. I agree. I think chef's I've table seen is brilliant. Some, you know, I've, I've seen chefs that I didn't really know about and the preparation of 
of you know their their food and where they're sourcing their food and you know how excited they get that you get excited because you really want to go to a place like that you know, where it's just where these chefs have such a love for what they're doing. But don't you think that they're moving towards that versus doing more competitive? And huh? shows more of like really understanding who that person is or who that restaurant is. Right. What do you think? Like like chopped and all of that. Yeah. Kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, personally, personally, I don't watch them. I, I I do think that from a certain point of view, there you one could use a platform like that to to get to the next step in their career, to further their career, to get. Uh, outreach from potential investors to connect with different collaborators. I, I do think that it has its uh, merits from that point of view, and, and far be it for me to say that that's not good TV. Or what I, I couldn't care less. It just, it's just not, it's not, not what I personally watch. Okay. It, oh, good. Oh. Well, I, 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 I think there are both points in my life where I enjoyed them. Uh, I started off watching the, the competition shows because I like to see like what a person would think about giving X amount of time with X amount of ingredients. So there was something fun and exciting about that. But um, moving, moving on, I've really been getting into more of the narrative of behind a person. So it's not quite in that moment what they can do, but it's like who they are, how they got to where they're at, and like, you know, what their goals are. Like, how do they create this restaurant? How do they think about creating their own voice and food? And that's kind of been where I'm at these days. And, and you get to know them. You feel exactly. like you get to know them. Exactly. It's, it's a combination of human study and like no. see people's reactions and, and motivations. And also it gives a, uh, to the, the viewers a, a view into like an, see what's happening behind the scenes, which people are, are very uh, intrigued about. I know I am. Well, and again, like I, I had the opportunity to meet Massimo Butora in October and I was a fanboy. I literally was a fanboy. I, I didn't know what to say. I was kind of like stepping back while he's drinking his espresso. And it's, it really, like, because I just related to him from that, from that show and really felt like, like I wanted to know more about him and his family. And I got that opportunity. So I'm going to go into the diner as the critic. What's your take on that? Do you, you, you should start because you just went, woof. <laughs> It's a big question. Uh, this is uh, one of the biggest changes that happened in, in the dining scene um, in general, is that the public is the critic now. Um, problem is not everybody's equipped to, to critique, uh, uh, but they have uh, medium, mediums to voice their, their opinions and views. Granted, it's subjective, but people lose sight of the fact that it's subjective. And that, that, that's a problem. Um, personally, I, I do go out a lot and I love uh, dining. Uh, I also never ever write anything negative. Bravo. If I don't like a place, I don't go, end of story. There's no need to trash yeah. or do uh, you know, cheap sensationalism or get your frustrations out there. There are other forums for that. So um, it's, it's hard. But on the other hand, if you can encourage uh, and share with, the, with the, your, your readers or followers, if you can share what an extraordinary experience you had somewhere, yes, go for it. Do you guys do that? Well, I, I don't agree. I don't like anyone that writes a negative response. First of all, I think you're a coward if you can't talk to someone in the restaurant. Um, I've gone, I eat out all the time. I've had meals that haven't been fantastic. And I think it's your, 
you, you should be saying something to the, the restaurateur, otherwise you're doing them a disservice. By writing on Yelp, you're not helping them, you're just letting a bunch of other people think that this is not a good restaurant. And there are circumstances, you know, it could be that three servers are out that day, the chef is sick, you know, these are human people that are trying their best to put out a good meal, and you'll find that if you say something, I would say nine out of 10 times they will come over and something will be done for you. You know, I, that's just my opinion, and I think, you know, with eating out, I've seen it a lot, so. I'm gonna get your take, and we're gonna go one last question. I would say for myself, as a diner, I, I'm the same person. Like, I, if I'm gonna go out, if I didn't enjoy the meal, okay, then I just didn't enjoy it. Again, maybe there was something off. I would never hold it against them. Um, but if I loved it, I will tell people about it. I will talk about it's that. It's nice to share. It is, it is. If I find something that gets me excited, I love it. I tell my friends the next day. Um, on the other side of it, receiving it, um, we're always listening, we're always learning. I mean, once we're out there and we're cooking food and we're, we're, we're especially like in the spirit of our new innovation location, you know, we are putting ourselves out there for criticism and we're always listening to it to see uh, what people are thinking and feeling. And you have to filter it out. That's the other part of it is you do have to filter it out because there can be some people that can talk loudly where no one else is feeling what they're feeling. They're just very vocal about it and they maybe have a big platform to chat about it. But we take all that into consideration, try to whittle it down, see like what we can actually learn and if there is something we can do better. I think what, what uh, Lori touched on a little bit was uh, this sense of empathy and understanding, well, maybe they're understaffed today, maybe somebody called out. Maybe I'm bringing my own negativity into this experience today because uh, whatever, I broke up with my boyfriend or whatever, whatever it may be. Uh, uh, there, are, there are so many outside uh, influences that, that affect the dining experience that I don't think the, taking it to a public forum like Yelp or whatever is, is the solution for me. So I, I tend to personally not say anything qualitative whatsoever, whether it's positive or negative, uh, but rather take the route of directly contacting the chef, text, email, whatever it may be, and saying, here's, here's my honest feedback. Because I think a lot of times, even to, uh, if you look at friends and family dinners, for instance, you're collecting all the people in the same room that already think you're great. So they're going to say, oh man, that's, Sal, that's, that's the no. best pasta I've ever had. And you're like, I, thank you, but can you please tell me what was wrong with it? And I think it's, it's very hard to solicit honest feedback. And so the, my part as the diner is to give the honest feedback because I appreciate what they're doing or what they're trying to do regardless. And I think friends and family is such an important part of opening a restaurant. Definitely. So the final question I'm gonna have for all you guys is, what does it take to be all in? I'm so all in that I didn't want to leave the hospitality, the H part, hospitality <laughs> industry. Uh, even though I'm not in the restaurant business uh, anymore, uh, I wanted to remain in that realm. So for me, with the champagne, so with me, all in is hospitality. Aaron? Uh, it's an important topic for me because I actually, it was a conversation I had with uh, Sherry early last year where we came up with a with the theme for this event. And uh, I was thinking of it sort of from two standpoints. Uh, all introspection and all intentionality. Uh, intentionality being what uh, was spoken about earlier with, uh, with the design, but I think if, you're, if you are clear in your, in your sense of purpose as a professional in this industry, and you also do, as Melanie said, take a look in the mirror every once in a while and have a conversation with sure. yourself and, and yep. sort of take stock of where you're at, what you're learning, what you need to learn, uh, and so on, then that's, that's how you find, that's how you reach a place of real hospitality. Awesome. 
Laurie. So um, for me, all in is, you know, understanding all of the aspects of the hospitality industry. You know, sometimes you get really caught up in your, you know, your own job and you don't realize what all these other aspects are and what it takes to really, you know, open a restaurant and, you know, what uh, public relations is all about and all the various, you know, components that, that are in this industry. So I'm Mark, all in. For me, it means uh, just putting myself out there to, to be able to continue to learn and grow. And uh, part of that is uh, stumbling and learning to get back up and understanding it. And uh, for me, it's, it's something, you know, as a little kid, I was just excited about, like, my mom cooking. And it's never stopped. And I just keep getting more and more excited as time goes on. And I think um, that's what keeps me going in this is just, again, uh, it's a long journey. There's a lot to learn. Just when I think maybe I understand the food element, you know, my curiosity goes to maybe, again, like the real estate or the design. It's all, it's all encompassing. It's, it's a, just one passion that I can't really see, like, where one discipline stops and the other one begins. But, again, there's so much to learn in this business. That's what I'm excited about, and that's why I keep going. And, ladies and gentlemen, can we give a huge round of applause to our panelists? Thank you, Sal. Thank, thank you. you. Shari, thank you very much. Well, hello again. I'm the closer. When, you, when you're the host, you, you are the opener, the middle, and the closer. <laughs> what it takes to be all in. To be all in. To give it your all. To be real. To be focused. To be passionate and driven. To be you. To be me. Erin Oresby, one of our speakers from our last panel, came up with our host 2020 theme. I'm giving him a full credit. He suggested we go all in. The first two words of my All in the Industry podcast that I've been hosting now for over six years. I had been focusing on the other two words, the industry, as it is my whole life. It's my work, it's my passion, my social community. But what about all in? Those were my actions. And when I started thinking about it and thinking back more about my career and life, I realized I've always been all in, although I may not have recognized it fully until now. So thank you, Erin. I'm a doer, not a planner. I take risks and I jump in, both figuratively and literally. I'll never forget my experience about seven years ago when I took the biggest solo trip at the time around the world to Australia and New Zealand for my 40th birthday. I loved this trip. And one highlight was bungee jumping in Queenstown, the home of the original bungee. Now, I knew if I was there, I had to do it. I had to jump. It was completely situational. Bungee was not on my bucket list until then. The setting just dictated my experience with, like, with all my travels. It's kind of like when you're in Madison Square Park on a really nice day and you just have to get in line at Shake Shack. It's situational. So scared or not, I was all in. I signed up, signed in, and signed off, and it was my actual birthday. After I was led onto the Kuaru Bridge, which had a large spectator audience who were not jumping but watching and cheering along, and my legs were tied to the cord, I wobbled to the edge, looking down over the water, and the countdown began. Smile at camera left. 
Weave at the right. And now, three, two, one. Oh my, wait, I'm supposed to jump next? What to do, I heard the voice in my head saying. But in that split second, I knew what I had to do. I had to go for it. So I opened my arms up to the sky, took a deep breath, and took a giant swine dive into the, into the air, going against every impulse my body had. Now, if I was a regular TEDx speaker, I'd have the video above for you guys to see, because I do have this on film. But trust me, I did it. And then I bounced and I swung, and eventually I landed on a yellow raft waiting for my arrival below. And guess what? Not only do I lift a tail, but I had the biggest high I've ever had in my life afterwards. I went against fear, and I won. I was determined and driven. And the next day, I went skydiving for the first time. You know, YOLO. <laughs> and I tell this not to say you need to experience AJ Hackett bungee or skydiving, even though I would recommend them both. But I share this to inspire you not to be afraid to try something new and possibly scary. Sure, I have fear, but my desire to experience is greater, and I let that win. I'm all in. To give you some background, I grew up in sunny Miami, Florida, and two weeks after I turned 16 and got my driver's license, I went out and got my first job as a hostess at a local Mexican restaurant called Carlos and Pepe's. I reported this to my parents after the fact, the same as I did with Bungie, and pretty much everything I do. It's <laughs> just better that way. But I came home with my surprise announcement that I wanted to work, and in a restaurant. I was all in. So there began my hospitality career. Yes, with the best chimichangas in town, which by the way, I think are due for a comeback. Deep fried burritos, anyone? I went on to have summer jobs, waiting tables at popular chain restaurants, including Bennigan's and Chili's, and then a cocktail server at a sports bar at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, where I proudly went to college, and Zingerman's was our special occasion place. I was also lucky to do a semester abroad in Florence, Italy, and do the backpacking thing in Europe, which opened my eyes to new cuisines and cultures and definitely gave me the travel bug. After college, I moved to Chicago with my liberal arts degree, not really sure what I wanted to do, but soon I found my way back to restaurants. Now, I had a lot of jobs in my 20s until I tried, as I tried to figure things out, but they were all in the industry. I was an office manager at Rock Bottom Brewery, a bar manager at BW3, a cater waiter, a garmanger cook making $7 an hour at a jazz club, and I completed a six-month culinary program at the Cooking Academy of Chicago, thinking I wanted to be a chef. My plan was to go to Europe and to cook, and then I saw an ad that Charlie Trotter was hiring, and I had his cookbook, and I flipped through it in awe. So I went in for the interview, and I was hired as a front-of-the-house position since I had more experience in the front than the back. As a server and a kitchen volunteer one shift a week, I considered this grad school in the culinary arts. Not only was I exposed to daily changing tasting menu with the finest ingredients, but I was constantly challenged working with the great Charlie Trotter. You certainly had to be all in. Being responsible for the restaurant's exclusive kitchen table while Charlie watched over was perhaps scarier than Bungie, 
But what an amazing opportunity, and I'm so grateful I had it. After three years in Chicago, I decided to pack my bags for New York City, enrolling in NYU's Graduate School Food Studies program. It was the perfect entryway for me into this new city, as I still search for my, my ideal job. I dabbled in recipe testing, food styling, publishing, and I had some amazing, amazing internships. Um, I worked with longtime culinary editor Jillian Duffy on New York Magazine's Food Issue, and then I had a full-time internship at Food Arts Magazine, working with distinguished Michael Batterberry, a true class act. And then eventually I found my way to PR, where I had the aha moment, this is what I can do. I can work with chefs and restaurants and help them grow their businesses and incorporate all of my culinary passion and my experiences into it. I went from KB Network News to Star Chefs and some freelance gigs to then embracing my entrepreneurial spirit and launching my own company, Bayer Public Relations, in 2003. Focusing on culinary and hospitality PR and marketing, my motto was and remains be seen, be heard, be known. With hard work and determination, I was able to secure clients and build my own network. Committed, passionate, I sought to represent inspiring chefs and restaurants, and 16 years later, I'm still at it. I'm still all in. My clients have ranged from old school institutions like Capsudo Frere, to Manhattan staples like Sullivan Street Bakery, to local gems like Sushi Ishikawa, to top hotel venues, including Spoken English at the Line Hotel in DC. And all along, I've remained a boutique, New York City-based agency, doing the work, having the client and media relationships, and representing myself at local and worldwide food and wine events. Then when BPR turned 10, a new idea arose. Why don't I do a podcast about the industry with all of the amazing contacts and relationships that I've made over the years, bringing behind the scenes talent to the forefront? And so I reached out to Aaron Fairbanks, former executive director of Heritage Radio Network, and pitched a new show, taped a pilot, and was given the green light, which I'm so grateful for. Starting in 2014, you could find me, and you could still find me, almost every Wednesday at 4 o'clock at Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn, doing my live show, All in the Industry. As host and producer, I dove in. I came up with my little bits. PR tip, speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining, and the final question. Plus the interview, of course. And I discovered that I really liked being on the other side, asking the questions and hearing others' stories, and being a part of the HRN family with Katie and Kat and Hannah and Matt and all the fellow hosts and engineers. It's a fabulous crew. I started my podcast as a side passion project, and I've been humbled by who I've had the opportunity to interview, from Danny Meyer to Danielle Ballou, Massimo Batura, Thomas Keller, Florence Fabricant, Ruth Reichel, and of course, Drew. Now, 239 episodes in, you could say, I'm all in, and I'm not, and I'm not stopping yet. I've taken my, my show on the road, covering conferences and festivals, from the Classic in Aspen to South Beach Food and Wine Festival, to Charleston Wine and Food Festival, and even to Hawaii. 
And last year, I challenged myself by doing red carpet interviews at the James Beard Awards at the Lyric Opera of Chicago. It was awesome, but oh so cold. Here's hoping for a real spring this year at Chi-Town. <laughs> Meanwhile, I continued to embrace my solo dining and travel, booking trips near and far centered around food, making connections along the way. Have laptop, will travel is my favorite hashtag. As in reality, between all of those fabulous meals and occasional yoga shots that I post, I'm working and getting it done. I am my business. My social and work life are one. I travel for my love of restaurants, from their cuisine, energy, design, service, and hospitality. And I've written a bit about my solo dining travels, mostly on Fathom. I talk about them on my show as well, including traveling across the country to dine alone at the French Laundry, to spending a gazillion or so dollars on fine dining in San Sebastian, to discovering Oslo's incredible food scene, and seeking the best Portuguese egg tarts in Macau, China. I feel very fortunate to have the opportunity to travel and share my worldwide experiences. And I can't believe I reached platinum status with airline miles last year. Let's see if I can keep that up. And I will share something really personal to me. I have been doing all of this while also not drinking. Now, I don't make a big deal about my sobriety or talk about it very much, but I'm proud of it, very proud of it. I haven't had a drink in over 17 years. I got sober in August 2002, and I haven't looked back. Yes, the beginning was really hard. I had to change my ways and priorities, but in doing so, my life got better, so I stuck with it. And now, I really like not drinking, and by no means do I allow it to affect my career and what I want to do. I'm still all in. I rep restaurants and bars, I attend and even curate cocktail and wine dinners, I travel to and for food festivals that have all-inclusive beverages, and I enjoy dining solo at a bar with a greasy cheeseburger, and a club soda. I'm very comfortable in social settings without the booze. And I have found over the years that most people don't even notice or care that I'm sipping water. There are, however, always those awkward moments that don't seem to go away, such as being sent out complimentary bubbly as a nice gesture while dining out, finding only alcoholic drinks at events, so relying on my own bottled water. And my favorite, maybe, that after telling clients or colleagues that I don't, that I don't drink, the response is, even wine? <laughs> I can't tell you how many times that has happened. <laughs> yes, even wine, it counts. Nevertheless, I know our industry has been changing, and not just with more thoughtful and delicious zero-proof drinks on menus, which are great. But there's now more of an open dialogue about sobriety and health issues and support awareness and realness, recognizing that not everyone wants to imbibe. It's nice to see we're going in that direction. So we come to today. The, conce the concept of bringing my show to life and connecting the industry. When I first shared this idea back in March 2018 with Keith Durst, one of our panelists, amazing panelists from this morning, I asked him what he thought. And he said, it sounded great. We'd support that. And so I was all in. Host was born. Well, I didn't have the name yet, but the seed was planted. 
Let's come together for important conversations in a conference setting. But let's have a party first. So last summer, we celebrated five plus years on the air with my All in the Industry show here at the William Vale on their beautiful rooftop. If you haven't been up there, you should go. Well, there's an ice rink up there now, but you should go. Um, and uh, we announced that we'd be doing the summit. Let's take the dialogues that I was having with industry leaders on air to real-time talks on stage in a room of good energy. Let's make contact away from our phones and computers and create a forum for an exchange of ideas with fellow food and beverage professionals igniting conversations over fabulous eats and drinks, a conference for the industry by the industry. So I created a new media and production company, All in the Industry, and started to reach out to my past show guests, seek partnerships, and form a team, as I knew I couldn't do this alone. And I was humbled by what I received. You were all in. And then the name came to me, Host, Hospitality, Operations, Services, and Technology. Four big pieces of our industry's puzzle that make it what it is today. Hospitality, how we treat one another. Operations, how we function to make systems work. Services, all of those invaluable extras that bring value to what we do. Technology, how we've advanced in a modern world. And host, a person who receives and entertains other people as guests or hosts. And that's me. Today is about learning, listening, and uniting. Smiling, hugging, shaking hands, exchanging business cards, and maybe even an Instagram selfie. It's about putting LinkedIn to life, Facebook to real faces, and smiles to the voices behind them. It's a summit plus social because it's meant to educate, inspire, and be fun and interactive, like our industry. I hope that's what you all get out of today. Sometimes I wonder how I got here. What pushes me to do and be more? I know it comes from within, but why do I do this and us? And why, why do I think this and us are worth the investment? I never studied PR or podcasts or radio or conferences, mind you. I'm just someone who jumps in with ideas and is willing to do the work and figure it out and ask for help when I need it. I aim for perfection, knowing though that it's impossible. And although I've built a successful career in New York City for over 21 years, it hasn't been all roses. There have been many disappointments, stressful times, collection issues, and restaurant closings, as this industry is hard. But you have to be, so you have to be all in to make it. There's no half in hospitality. It's in or out. And probably, like many of you, this industry just sort of grabbed me and made me all in, and I'm glad it did. So I stand here today, completely humbled and grateful for each and every one of you. I look out at the familiar faces and I'm so very thankful for the relationships that I've made over this crazy career of mine as you are my industry family. Thank you all for being here with me and with us and being all in. And thank you all for staying. That's the show. Um, before we toast to host at our closing reception, I have a few more important things to give. Uh, they said your first year to go small, and we didn't do that. We went kind of big, so um, more people to thank. 
I want to thank our outstanding partners. We really appreciate you for believing in us, especially in our first year, and making this so fabulous and delicious. Um, as soon as I finish up here, we're going to go out to our closing receptions, which will be featuring Greenpoint Fish and Lobster Company, La Palapa Cochina Mexicana, The Meatball Shop, Our New York Vodka, Woodford Reserve, Ramona, Curious Elixirs, La Caravelle, Kim Crawford Wine, Rafino Wines, and Ithaca Beer Company. Thank you all. Also, thanks to our media partner, Total Food Service and Studio Industria. To the people behind the scenes, maybe you've seen moving around, um, who played a big role, I want to say thank you to Ken Goodman, to Eric Vitali, to Christian Zuniga, Sebastian Cavallo, Babette Roberts, and all of our volunteers, including my sister Joanne. Thanks to my hardest working, fabulous Lady Power team. Wow, this has been a ride, and I couldn't have done this without you. Our amazing event producer, Marissa Ain. Crete. And creative director, Carla Siegel, who all of this branding is Carla. All Carla. And our, our I mean, a, a fabulous team. Erica Feiler. <laughs> Tabitha Golubaradko, if I got that right. <laughs> Helen Baldis. Liz, Liz Spano. And, and Beth Schiff. You guys, you guys rock, really. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. To our all-star lineup of speakers who committed to being part of this first host and believe in what we're doing, I'm so grateful. Thank you. Thank you to the William Vale, especially Jessica Holcomb, Chef Anthony Rico, NoHo Hospitality Group, and team. This has been this has been really quite a day, quite a quite an experience, and we're just so grateful to be here. And lastly, thanks to my parents who are here today, because they would they wouldn't miss any endeavors for the world for me. So of my endeavors. So thank you. And um, that's it. I put it. I did put a tissue in my pocket because I thought this was going to happen. So. Here's to host. Go, let's go enjoy the cocktail reception. Thank you for tuning into this special episode of All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network, covering Host Summit Plus Social, which took place on Monday, January 27, 2020, at the William Vale in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Many thanks to my fabulous team, our fantastic panelists and partners, and everyone who joined us for our live event. It was a truly special day. Thanks to the Heritage Radio Network team for their amazing support, including Katie Mossman-Wadler, Kat Johnson, Hannah Forden, Dylan Hewer, and Amanda Wang. For more information about host, please go to allintheindustry.com and stay tuned for our video coverage. On social media, follow along at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR and at All Industry, and our hashtag for the event was Host Summit Social and Host 2020. Check out my Facebook page at All in the Industry and websites BayerPublicRelations.com and SherryBayer.com. 
All of our shows are archived at heritageradionetwork.org. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. I'm Sherry Bayer. Thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Stay well and take care. Bye. All in the Industry is powered by Simplecast. I'm Sherry Bayer, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, HRN is celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.